I ask that my motion be granted. More than that, gentlemen, in the name of a humanity fading in the shadow of the machine, I demand it. I demand it! Bridge to all decks. Time for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Mance. And I am Steve Morris. And I am so excited to listen. Uh, this episode of Court Martial has always been one of my favorites. I absolutely love it. And I can't wait to talk about it with you. You know, one of the things that I always loved about Star Trek was, and we talked about this many times, is I became a Star Trek fan because I was a fan of Captain Kirk. Captain Kirk is the reason I became a Trekker because he was a great hero. He was a great role model. He still is. When I was six years old, I wanted to be Captain Kirk. I am now 52 years old and I still want to be Captain Kirk. And I love this episode because it is a Kirk driven episode and it is an episode where we find a lot about Kirk's history, not just his history with Uh, someone who used to be a friend, but also a little bit of a romantic history there as well. This is another episode following what are little girls made of that explores the concept of man versus machine in a very, very different way. Man versus machine is a, is a, is a, an ideal that has been explored many times on Star Trek throughout its 55 year history across all 10 shows. I am including the two animated shows and short treks in there. Uh, no other show has had this many spinoffs. Eat your heart out, law and order. <laughs> but I'm very excited because not only are we going to do our deep dive into court martial, an episode, as we will find out, that had a very troubled screenwriting history. It went through many rewrites. Uh, I didn't realize how many rewrites this went through and how many different changes it went through. But because, Steve, this is the first episode of Enterprise Incidents where we have a very special guest to join us to do our deep dive. And not only is our guest a huge, massive fan of the original series. He has worked in Star Trek for, I would say, 30 years now across so many different platforms of Star Trek. He got his start as a production assistant on Star Trek The Next Generation. He was the assistant to Rick Berman and Mary Howard before becoming a supervisor of Star Trek projects, overseeing Deep Space Nine and Voyager, then becoming an associate producer on Enterprise. And if you if you check out the very last episode of Enterprise, uh, these are the voyages you'll you'll catch a glimpse of them and the 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 gig that i gotta say that made me the most envious of dave rossi i'm very excited to have dave rossi joining us he was the visual effects producer along with my good friends mike and denise okuda on the original series remastered episodes uh which have just given me such a so much joy and this is just the tip of the iceberg so Welcome, Dave Rossi. <laughs> oh, guys, thank you so much for having me. This is uh, this is uh, a complete thrill. I've been listening to the show, and I just love it. And uh, um, 
I'm honored to be your first guest. You can only go up from here. So this is <laughs> not uh, true. <laughs> not true. <laughs> well, the other thing about Dave that y'all have to know is that we actually worked together for a little bit in the mid nineties. Uh, we were both working for creation entertainment that, that still does uh, the big star Trek conventions. Um, but back then uh, in 93 and 94, and when next generation was uh, nearing the end of its run, we were doing like 140 star Trek conventions around the country every year and uh dave was a was a, was a frequent guest and then he became a show mc for us and i got him to know him so well back then and just uh i i'm just so honored dave that you were joining us on enterprise incidents to talk about just just go to town on court martial <laughs> yeah this is and this is uh, one of my favorite episodes i uh you know i like you scott it's all, it was all about Captain Kirk, you know, uh, growing up as a kid, he was just, uh, this icon and, uh, you know, most kids, my, uh, in my kind of peer group had that picture of Farrah Fawcett hanging on their wall in their bedroom. <laughs> I had the enterprise and Captain Kirk, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it, this also has one of my favorite, uh, line deliveries, which we'll get to when, when we get to it from Kirk, that is just a, a very powerful moment for me that I love. But, you know, you know, of all the episodes, you know, because I remember when I asked you to join us, I said, hey, you know, sky's the limit, whatever episode you want to do. And and you had you had mentioned a couple other episodes. And I was really, really intrigued by your choice to pick Court Martial, which is an episode that I think that is admired and respected and appreciated, but it's not really beloved. So what was it that struck you as a as a kid? Well, you know, the, the very first scene I ever saw was them beaming down to Omicron City and, and the transporter in itself, it was an immediate hook as a little six, seven year old kid, you know, um, Spock with the ears and, you know, uh, just following that first episode, the, the dynamic nature of Captain Kirk being the hero and overcoming these spores just by you know, pure, sheer force of will. I can't uh, leave. Yeah, I mean, you know, he looks at his medals and it was just this, I don't know, it really spoke to me. And and this limb he goes out on to, to bring his friend back in line. And I got so heavily into it. I remember I adapted Dungeons and Dragons into a Star Trek game that I could play with my friends. I would teach Star Trek to my friends in the neighborhood using the the... Uh, Franz Joseph technical manual. And then as you get older, the, the, the stories start to speak to you, right? The morality and, and mm -hmm. the ethical nature of these, of all these people and the, this idea that we can be more and that we can elevate our, ourselves. And, and uh, you know, that, that spoke to me a lot more, but, but it's always been uh, just something very, very near and dear to my heart. And, uh, uh, as, it, as it is with you, I, I, I love listening to your show, guys, because that just, it comes through so clearly um, listening to you guys talk about this. I'm just, I'm really honored to, to be a part of it. Thank you. Well, well, thank you so much, Dave. But, but Steve, like, what was it about Court Martial that you liked then? And, you know, because, because Dave brought up a good point that the, there are certain things about Star Trek that you, you grow to appreciate the older you get. You have your own life experiences. So what did you like then and how did life change your perspective of court martial? Well, what's so interesting to me is like we talked about it many times, and this is such a great example of Star Trek's ability to tell totally different kinds of stories. And this episode is Perry Mason. 
You know, this is a courtroom drama. And I got to tell you, one of the other shows I love watching, I love Perry Mason. In <laughs> fact, the alternate reality, I was going to be a lawyer. Like I, when I, I, I did theater all as a kid as in high school, I acted in plays, I directed plays. And then I decided I'm not that good at this stuff. I need a real job. And so when I applied to college, I went and was a political science major with an emphasis in constitutional law, because my plan was to be a lawyer and maybe go into politics. And yet, while I was doing poli sci, I kept going over to that theater department and doing more plays and doing more plays and doing more plays. <laughs> and I just couldn't get away from it. But still, that love of the law is still something really big for me. And so there is a character in this episode that is among my favorite supporting characters in all of Star Trek. And, oh, wow. and it's and we'll get to him, you know, we'll get we'll get to him because he is definitely a standout. I know who you're talking about. So Court Martial aired on February 2nd, 1967. It was the 20th episode to air, but it was actually the 15th episode to film over a period of six and one third days between October 3rd and October 11th, 1966. Now, after the previous episode that was filmed, which was the Galileo 7 was one of the most expensive episodes of the original series. Bob Justman, who was the number cruncher, among other things, on the original series. I mean, he was definitely a creative producer and is is up there with Gene Kuhn, Roddenberry, and Dorothy Fontana as having the most significant impact on Star Trek. He needed an episode that was going to bring, bring the deficit down. So he was looking for almost a bottle ship to do that, a bottle episode to do that. Not that this is quite a bottle episode, but the total cost of court martial was only $175,182. It was under $18,318, under the first season per episode budget of $193,500. The visual effects bill from Film Effects of Hollywood was only $5,798, and they did not record a, a unique score. All of the music was pre-tracked from other episodes. The re- episode was written by two people, Don Mankiewicz and Stephen Karabatsis. So Don Mankiewicz is the son of Herman Mankiewicz. Wow. He's an Academy Award winner, along with Orson Welles, for writing the screenplay for this little low-budget independent film called Citizen Kane. <laughs> he is also the nephew of Joseph Mankiewicz, who was also a very big screenwriter back in the day with movies like Guys and Dolls and All About Eve. Don Mankiewicz also wrote TVs for TV's One Step Beyond, Ironside, Macmillan and Wife, and he is an Oscar nominee for co-writing the film I Want to Live. And mm. for, for fans listening to Enterprise Incidents, you know the name Stephen W. Karabatsis because he was the story editor for the original series after John D.F. Black left. So that brings us to all of the stats and details of when this episode was actually made. One interesting thing that I realized is that when we started talking about the things that were going on in the world in our first few episodes, we talked about it when the show aired and somewhere we switched to when the show was shot. And so this, some of the events that I'm about to talk about are things that we already mentioned because this, this show is now airing. Um, and here's what was going on in the world between October 3rd and October 11th, there was a near meltdown at the experimental Fermi-1 reactor 
near Detroit, and it became the subject of a 1975 best-selling book called We Almost Lost Detroit. Oh. Um, <laughs> in North Korea, Kim Il-sung, the grandfather of the current dictator of North Korea, delivered a speech to the Korean Workers' Party saying they will wage a positive struggle against American imperialism. American foreign policy places this as the real beginning to the conflict which has now gone on for 55 years Amazing. between North Korea and the United States. Um, the World Teachers' Day was started by, by UNESCO on October 6th. LSD was declared illegal in California, and on the same day, the Love Pageant Rally took place in the Panhandle in San Francisco, which is right in the Haight-Asbury, and playing at that gig was the Grateful Dead and Janis Joplin. This is really the beginning of the hippie movement, right there, the day they made LSD illegal. And um, that was when they were filming a Star Trek episode called Court Martial. I love yeah. that. <laughs> um, on October 9th, the Orioles beat the Dodgers in game four of the World Series. They swept it. In October 10th, the world's first SETI conference, communication with extraterrestrial intelligence, took place. Um, which I think is pretty cool that that's happening right as Star Trek is being filmed. And the Beach Boys released arguably their greatest and most famous and most technically complex song, Good Vibrations. Oh, George, Good, Good Vibrations isn't just the greatest Beach Boys song of all time. It's one of the greatest pop singles of all time, period. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. So, so this episode, uh, the original story outline that Don Mankiewicz wrote was dated May 3rd, 1966. And at that time, it was called Court Martial on Starbase 811. It's kind of a long title. Uh, Mankiewicz wrote his second draft teleplay on September 6th. And then Stephen Karabatsis came in to do a rewrite dated September 19th. That, that rewrite that Karabatsis did is when the episode started being called Court Martial and that was it. And then Gene Kuhn came in and did a final draft teleplay polish dated September 26. But there are a lot. As we go through our deep dive, I'm going to get into just some of the original concepts that they have for the original story. And it's a miracle that the episode turned out as good as it is, I have to say. <laughs> well, Scott and Dave, would you like to get into the world of Court Martial? Absolutely. Captain's log, star date 2947.3. We have been through a severe ion storm. One crewman is dead. Ship's damage is considerable. And we're heading into Starbase 11 for repairs, and Kirk has to make his report to the Commodore, Commodore Stone. Again, he's he's great, great character, and this is like two weeks in a row that we've had African-American characters playing intelligent, powerful, interesting people. And I just, you know, there's not nowhere else on TV that that's happening. You know, what I love about Commodore Stone is, you know, he delivers this line where he says a little bit later on, where he says, not one person in a million could do what you and I have done, command a starship. And what you get from this guy is he is a starship captain. I mean, you, you, you just, the way the actor Percy Rodriguez portrays, I mean, he's just so confident and and you can tell he's this strong-willed, no-nonsense guy. And I could totally see him commanding a starship. I would watch a show about him commanding a starship. Percy Rodriguez was absolutely fantastic as Commodore Stone. And I remember when I was growing up and I was watching Court Martial, I was a little intimidated by Commodore Stone. Like, here's a uh, 
is he above Kirk? Yeah. Or is he yes. on the Okay, yes. so he's above Kirk. So this is someone who has a, in the rank of command is above Captain Kirk. And and I was intimidated, especially when the events start to turn against Kirk and Stone is starting to already pass judgment on him. But Percy Rodriguez was like his his resume, his his acting accomplishments are enormous. Uh, in in the you know the sixties and seventies uh, and the fifties actually you know he was uh, doing TV like shoestring theater he played Doctor Harry Miles for four years on Peyton Place he also guest starring appearances from the sixties on Mission Impossible to the eighties he played Judge Harper on Benson but I I just gotta ask so there are two things happening in the teaser and it depends on which version of Court Martial you watch. There are two different things to appreciate. So in the original version, we see for the first time a Starbase, Starbase 11. And the matte painting for the Starbase 11 was done by Albert Whitlock, which is a gorgeous painting. But I remember back in 2007 when I was watching the remastered version of Court Martial and you're in orbit and you see the Enterprise and and sort of Below and then behind the Enterprise, you see another starship. So, like, I just used to get so excited watching the remastered versions of Star Trek because I was, like, re-watching Star Trek with a whole new set of eyes. It was like I was rediscovering and re-appreciating because I was watching things about the original series that I never saw before. So, Dave, I got to ask you, what is the other starship? Is that the Intrepid? It is the Intrepid. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it, it's the Intrepid. And then also, uh, I think in higher orbit above them both, there's a freighter that we took from the animated series, that style of freighter that we, we uh, that we also used in Charlie X, I think. Yes. Uh, yeah. You yeah. used as the Ateris. Yeah, as the Ateris. Yeah. Um, and then also uh, on the pass of the Enterprise, the beauty passes, it comes by a uh, camera in the window in the very back near the shuttle bay is Denise Okuda. Walking oh, up. I love oh. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that that's so cool that you got to like put yourself into like you're in the menagerie on the Starbase, uh, which is very, yeah. very cool. Yeah. Um, but what you and Mike and Denise did on the remastered series, like you did it just perfectly because you complemented the interior shots, all the sets, because the, the special effects in some cases made the episodes better, like the Galileo 7 yeah. and especially tomorrow is yesterday, which I already loved because of Dorothy Fontana's writing. Like that episode was improved by 20 fold because of the sight of the enterprise orbiting the earth with the moon in the background. That just made me so happy. I was like a kid in a candy store watching that episode, but, but I just like, what a, what overall Dave, the, the thrill to, to be part of that project I'll tell you, and I, you know, I've worked on a lot of different Star Trek things, but that is easily um, the, the high point of, of everything I, I got to work on. And, you know, sitting down and looking at these episodes and watching them and then being able to go back and, and talk with Mike and Denise about it. And, you know, we should put the Intrepid there, you know, and, and listen, there's a list of starships on the wall we could have we could have put in there, but he mentions the intrepid stone mentions the intrepid by name. So, uh, so we thought it would be, it would be good to put it in there. And it's, it would have been easy for us to really keep going and, and go overboard. We, we, we really had to be conscious about 
not wanting to pull people out of the story. This should always be about our characters and, and what they're going through. And we should never make these visual effects so flashy that they, you know, that they take you away from that. But we did want to kind of add to the substance of it. And, and really across the run of that sh- series, there were only uh, a handful of shots of the enterprise right. you know, you, mm-hmm. in, in existence, except for some episode specific things. There were only a very few beauty passes and we ended up, I think, creating 150 more. Wow. Or something. Well, 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 there were certain subtle changes that you did that were actually a stroke of genius. One of them being, so in the teaser, I know I'm getting out of court martial here, but I just got to say, I'm just so excited to talk to Dave about this. But in the teaser for Gamesters of Triskelion, when Kirk and Uhura and Chekhov are whisked away to Triskelion and they're, they're, they appear on the platform and they're like, look, look at the color of that sky. Uh, and Kirk says, and that's a trinary sun. Okay. So when you come back after the commercial break, after the uh, the opening credits, and you see the title credits for Gamesters of Triskelion, you see the planet and you see three suns. Like you actually showed that it was a trinary system. And I just went, oh my God, that's so cool that they did that. Sorry. Yeah, it's just, it's yeah. just those subtle kind of layerings that we were trying to, to achieve. And we had, you know, look, it's like, it's you both are, are are in this business. You understand there is never enough time and never enough budget. And there's so much more we wanted to do. One of the things we wanted to do on this episode on on court martial we didn't get to do, but I'll, I'll I'll bring it up when we get to the scene. But but little tiny little things that you know you go oh if we only would have had a little more time you know. Well, the, but the thing I think that you did so well and that impresses me the most, which you touched on, is your restraint is that you never wanted to show off. And it's really, and the thing, the thing that I noticed watching the enhanced effects is that I think the stories and the performances and the direction of the, of the episodes are evergreen. I think they look just as good. They're just as compelling. They're just as interesting today as they were when they were made. And the original effects get older and older and older every year. And so like what you did was just bring it up to that kind of evergreen level mm-hmm. and, and did, but didn't put in crazy George Lucas, you know, <laughs> changes that would have taken me out of the episode. And I think that is just so, so impressive. Well, thank Absolutely. you. It was, it was, it was good to bring Denise and Mike in because then there were three of us. So ties could be broken. Like, I, you know, I, I, one more super quick story, but James R. Kirk. Yeah. Do we change it? Do we change it on the tombstone? And Denise, we were at my house. Mike was sitting between Denise and I on the sofa and Denise and I were having this full on, you know, discussion about it, right? Where I was saying, we've got to change it to T. And she was saying, no, it's got to be R. Keep it R because, you know, he's so crazy. He's forgotten his name. I'm like, would you forget your best friend's name? And we had this whole argument and Mike was just sitting there silent. And Denise said, I have to go to the restroom. And she got up and walked away. And I turned to Mike and I said, you're being a coward. You know I'm right. You know. But I mean, ultimately, ultimately it was out of our hands because, uh, we wouldn't have had the time to, there was so much uh, going on in those shots that you could see it so many times, the amount of Roto work. And yeah. yeah, it would have been a lot of work for you. Oh yeah. 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 We never, yeah. we never would have been able to do it, but it so was, but it was a very funny moment. <laughs> so Denise wins. Denise won that one, yeah. I mean, my assumption is touching these things you love so much. It had to be really scary. It know? was, it yeah. was. And you got, and we got into things where, you know, things that kind of caught, off, caught us off guard, like, 
do we show a tractor beam? You know, like right. now next generation, they're showing tractor beams. Should we add that? You know, what color should phasers be? They go from blue yeah, to yeah. red, to, you know. So there, there were all these weird little things that would kind of catch us. And we'd have really long discussions about them. But it was fun, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, at its heart, but, it was really fun. But but even like in, in a, a Taste of Armageddon in the beginning of the episode when they're approaching a mini R7, they're, they, you know, during the captain's log, he says star cluster. And you see the little star cluster that they're approaching. <laughs> I mean, all the all the detail. I, 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 we could just do a show just on this. But let's get back into court martial. <laughs> well, where we are in court martial is we're with Commodore Stone and Kirk is going over essentially his affidavit of what happened. That makes three times you read it, Jim. Is there an error? No. But the death of a crewman. And the thing that's interesting is that we we hear as he's as he's signing the document that the computer log is gonna back up his deposition. It's gonna reinforce that, except Where's Mr. Spock? We should have been there 10 minutes ago, sir. And we hear for the first time that the person they lost is Lieutenant Commander Finney. And then we hear how it happened, which is there's an ion storm, there's a red alert, and he had a jettison the pod. And at that moment, Mr. Spock walks in and he looks very awkward. Yeah, Spock's in a very tough place here. He knows that he's going to hand over something to Commodore Stone that's going to get his captain and his friend in a, in a heap of trouble. And he obviously wants to warn him. Captain, I believe I... I'll take that. And what's so great in the way that it's shot is you see that Kirk sees that something's up. There's a silent moment of communication. And before we can deal with that, in walks Jamie, the daughter of the man who died. Jamie. There you are. I just wanted one more look at you. The man who killed my father. Jamie played by Alice Rawlings. And when she walks in and she sees Kirk and she's accusing him, she starts crying and she says, you murderer. I mean, it's a it's a very emotional moment. Spock has this real look of pain on Jamie's reaction, but he's looking at Kirk when he has it. And, you know, he not only knows the pain his friend is dealing with the death of Ben and, and now Jamie's reaction, but also what's about to happen to Kirk. He knows that this is about that, that he's about to get called on the carpet and there's this evidence against him. You know, I once read somewhere, I don't know if it was, it might have been in a novel or something about how Vulcans uh, tend not to want to touch other people because they, they have a tendency to pick up emotions stronger that way if they're, if they're touching. And, and, you know, Commodore Stone says, Mr. Spock, if you would, you know, escort Miss Finney out. And Spock, he, he t- touches her arm. And then, again, he's, he can't even look Kirk in the eye. He, he looks away. It's a beautiful performance by Leonard Nimoy. I mean, it's just, God, they, these guys just nail it and, and uh, just consistently. I just love the, the whole setup. The other subtlety is, is that Kirk, after, after this whole thing, like when, when Spock escorts Jamie out and Kirk turns back to Stone, the look on Kirk's face is like, he is a deer in the headlights. He is in total shock. Two things about this. One is that I, we said it over and over again, but it, it it bears repeating here. Mr. Spock has emotions. This is a guy that continually says, I only care about logic. But the guy who walks in with the evidence that his best friend is in trouble and then watches this the daughter call, call him a murderer, that guy is feeling a lot of stuff. And the other thing, and this is just beautiful writing, is the double whammy of Commodore Stone reading the evidence at the same time the uh, Jamie is accusing Kirk of murder. That 
is really, really powerful. You say you jettisoned the pod after the red alert? You have my sworn deposition. Then, Captain, I must presume you have committed willful perjury. This extract from your computer log says you jettisoned the pod before going to red alert. Consider yourself confined to the base. Official inquiry will determine whether a general court-martial is in order. And just that, that sting, that music sting, that is how you do a teaser <laughs> for Star Trek. He's got this whole thing going on in his head. What, what, he must just be, you know, he's so aware of, of things and so thoughtful. And he knows that he didn't do that. So th- that it's like, you know, itching powder, you know? Well, uh, we are we we go into the first act now, and we have another great shot of the remastered Enterprise, <laughs> and the detail on the Enterprise. You know, you're showing the the battle damage, so to speak, from the ion storm, and you're showing the the empty space on the Enterprise where the pod was jettisoned. Uh, you know, that's something we just didn't have the luxury to do back in 1966. But now Kirk is confined to the base and he's at the bar. He's seen a lot of peers and colleagues. I see our graduating class from the academy as well represented. And I think that's important because that means all of them knew Ben Finney because he was an instructor at the academy at the time. I understand you're laying over for repairs. Big job. A couple of days. Be moving out then. That look on his face. That guy is a smarmy, smarmy boy. You just you just want to punch him in the face because he's just so he's dripping with that sarcasm and that, that, that oh God, I hate that guy. And by the way, again, we talked about over and over again, Kirk the Observer, is that he knows what's going on right from the beginning. And he says In a hurry to see me go. Oh, I just wondered how long it would take you to get a new records officer. Oh wow. Oh, dig. Now let me tell you something about this scene. So the the character of Timothy, whose name I don't think we actually hear, but that's the character's name. The actor's name is Winston DeLugo. So if you notice, Winston DeLugo, the character uh, of Timothy, he's sitting sitting on a, a stool by the bar. Well, when Mark Daniels was originally setting up this shot, Winston DeLugo is a lot taller than William Shatner. So in the in the initial setup of the scene, they did a version of the take. And then Shatner, Shatner called cut and he went over to Mark Daniels and then Shatner went back to his trailer and Mark Daniels reset the scene to have Winston DeLugo sitting on the stool so he would not look <laughs> taller than Shatner. But the other thing that was going on at the time, at the moment that this episode was being filmed was that Shatner was was having a hard time. Uh, his his uh, marriage was was not working out, and it was affecting him. And he kept having to have uh, the makeup person check his makeup because he kept kind of welling up. But when they called action, he was he was right on it. But it was a hard scene for Shatner. He was having a hard day. The shot where you're seeing Winston DeLugo and the other guy sitting behind him, William Shatner was actually not on the set when mm. that particular point of view that shot was being filmed he's actually talking to mark daniels's hand <laughs> that is surprisingly not as uncommon as you might think it it happens frequently actors partially because of lighting setups they have to act to a piece of tape or a tennis ball or something like that <laughs> in general it's it's considered bad form to not be there for the off-camera lines but it happens sometimes there's a couple other interesting things going on in this scene. Um, Kirk says, I see our graduating class is well represented. And he taught, he's, you, you, you're introduced to this guy, Corrigan and Keller, and then Mike and Timothy, and they're all lieutenants. No one is a oh, captain. Right. And 
you know, I start to wonder, is there a little resentment going on that Kirk is this wonderkin that he's this, you know, he's the, what Finney says towards the end, you know, the great captain Kirk, you know, that everyone loves to see these guys get kind of knocked down. And I wonder if there's some kind of resentment going there. I don't know. There's something weird going on with stone as well earlier in the scene mm-hmm, where mm-hmm, he, mm-hmm. they obviously know each other. He calls him Jim. They have this uh, obvious relationship of some kind that seems kind of casual, but yet he seems ready to pounce on Kirk at every minute. Dave, I literally had, ex- I have that as my exact note. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it until I watched it this last time, but I'm like, Oh, they are kind of happy to see the great man knock down a peg. They're enjoying it. And I'll tell you something that I noticed even more strongly this time is when Kirk kind of, you know, McCoy's going, Hey, let's get out of here. And Kirk is going, no, no, go on. Ben was a friend of ours. Come on, Jim, let's go. Go on, finish. Ben was a friend of yours, and... The smile that Shatner gives at that moment, I think that is the most dangerous we have ever seen Captain Kirk. I think he, you know, we've seen him in obviously all these life and death situations. We've seen him face down people with godlike powers and talk (laughs) computers, you know, massive androids, all that stuff. But this moment of him just smiling and saying, go on, that is a scary, scary guy at that moment. That level of confidence that Kirk displays at that moment, like everyone in that room is ganging up on him. Everyone in that room is staring him down. There's a level of schadenfreude, which is uh, yeah. the joy in the misery of others, that everyone is unfairly projecting onto Kirk. And what does he do? He takes that moment and he grabs it and he, he controls it. He's like, come on. It's almost like the scene in Charlie X. When he tells Charlie, go to your quarters or I'll pick you up and carry you there. Don't mess with James T. Kirk. (laughs) There's also a little bit of a flub in this scene, which is Hmm. the officers comprising his panel. In act two, Kirk says, we'll see, the officers comprising my court-martial panel are on their way to Starbase 11. But when they walk into the bar, they're all sitting there at tables. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah and that's that's something that set me on this little course with with the ship names that were in commodore stone's office because we know a handful of starship captains right we know captain tracy there was mention of a captain harris who was killed on the excalibur um in, in the with the m5 and uh you know we know kirk we know uh, commodore wesley we know you know all these different guys uh, and know, so decker yeah from the constitution <laughs> yeah exactly and so these two guys who are mentioned as starship captains later on uh chandra and uh krasnovsky yep, i always wondered right. i always wondered what who what captain are they the starship of well i found an article from the 1970s that was written by greg jean who was a model, who became a model maker for, for the series for long, many years. And he wrote this article called uh, the, the Case of John Doe Starship, where he took that list that is in Commodore Stone's office, and he assigned, through the original 12 starships that Kirk mentions, there are only 12 like it, mm-hmm. he figures out which ones they are. And so the two missing are the... Yorktown and the Potemkin, which means that all the other ones are uh, apparently, I don't know why, but in orbit around Starbase 11 at that that time, getting (laughs) doing something there. So there's only two missing. Through that, you know, little rabbit hole, I kind of figured, well, Chandra and and Krasnowski must be the captains of the Yorktown and the Potemkin. 
That's amazing. Damn. Wow. See, this is why you're the perfect guest, the first guest to have on our show. This is exciting. It was really fun. It was what's, fun. What, what's so funny about this, like having written scripts, like I know that sometimes it's like, well, I just need to fill in three more names, you know? So you just make up three names and you're not, you put, and that is all the thought you ever, just to make the line sound better or have the thing to put on the wall or whatever it is. And the fact, can you imagine if, you know, Mankiewicz knew that there were people decades later who were yeah. trying to figure out exactly which ship was where or whoever. You know, I mean, that's just so that just shows the enduring power of this show. I love yeah, it. It really does. Dave, that, that kind of, uh, you know, like assigning names to starships like that, that just warms my heart with joy. <laughs> yeah. I want to, I want to hug great Jean and be like, you're one of us, you know, I'll, you're, I'll you're of you. the body. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you something else that, that I just learned maybe a year, maybe two years ago that really kind of rocked my, my fandom canon world. So when you see uh, the Exeter and captain Tracy, mm-hmm. he has a different. Yeah. Insignia. Right. right. So right. in my growing up and, and knowing what I felt I knew about Star Trek was every starship because of that and because of, of Decker on the Constellation, mm-hmm. every starship had its own symbol. Right. And it turns out that that's not true. It turns out that the Exeter was actually a mistake by Bill Tice. He wasn't aware that Gene Roddenberry's directive was – Every starship has the Delta symbol. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Every person on a star base has Commodore Stone's symbol. Every commander in charge of a starship, but who is a fleet commander, gets Decker's symbol. Mm. I mean, there's this whole, there's a guy named John Cooley who works for a company called Inovos, and they're the company that does the, the, the uniforms. Uh, the, the uniform. Uh-huh. Yeah. And John Cooley wrote a great article on um, on these things. So there's there's six duty insignias in, in Star Trek. There's starship duty. There's uh, spacecraft duty, which is what you get into when you start looking at the Antares, because that's more of a merchant marine ship, not a starship. Uh-huh. There's outpost duty, which was like uh, outpost seven colony personnel and things like that. There's cadet duty insignias, which you see on Finnegan in Shorely mm. when he's wearing one. Right. There's starbase duty, which you see on Commodore Stone and Commodore Stalker later on in the deadly mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. And then there's the fleet command insignia, which is senior field commanders, which is like uh, uh, Commodore Wesley. Oh, well, well wow. that that is an education. I mean, I never knew that. I never knew that. I I would get in arguments with people about it. I'd be like, no, but on the Exeter, they had their own. I mean, I had these whole arguments. And then John Cooley, uh, uh, who I've known for a few years now, uh, we had a talk about it. He was like, no, that's not, that's not how it went. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something else that'll blow your mind. And Dave, you might already know this, but you know, I I always wondered how in the later shows, next gen and DS9, you hear about the Enterprise, you know, Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I mean, in, in The Naked Now, you hear about James T. Kirk. But why was it Captain Kirk and the Enterprise that was always remembered? What about all the other starships? How come you never heard about the Constellation? You never heard about the Exeter? You never heard about the Potemkin or the uh, the Yorktown in Voyager or on DS9? And 
I for, I don't remember where I read this, but I did read that back in the 70s, Gene Roddenberry said that after the end of the five-year missions of all the starships, the Enterprise was the only starship to return from its five-year mission. And that is why, that is why Kirk and the Enterprise are so revered in Starfleet history because the Starship Enterprise, the Constitution-class Starship Enterprise commanded by James T. Kirk was the only Constitution-class Starship to return from its five-year mission. That, not only did that blow my mind, that actually gave me the chills. Yeah. Because look at all the Starships that bit the dust in the TOS. I mean, the Exeter uh, and definitely the Constellation. You got, I think one or two Starships got destroyed. Yeah, the Defiant disappears. Yeah, 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 see? I mean, that makes perfect sense. You got the the Intrepid, the all-Vulcan Starship and the Immunity Syndrome. So, boy, this was a great tangent. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's also some, you know, watching this show now in preparing to talk to you guys, I started seeing things I haven't seen in 50 viewings of this episode. Things like in the bar, there's a sign in the middle of the bar that says M11 Starbase Club. I'd never noticed that before. I never noticed that at all. I didn't notice it either. (laughs) It's right in the middle of the bar. It's really funny. And the fact that the the back walls look like they're Baylocks shit. Uh, yeah. which, which I'm sure they are. I mean, I'm sure they just pulled yeah, them out totally. of storage. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, when he introduces these guys, Corrigan and Keller, and these two guys just kind of throw a look to the camera. When Kirk leaves and bumps into that guy as he's leaving the bar and a real Shaw walks in, right after she walks in, that guy Keller walks by the bar and looks in. That so I noticed. Yeah, they're obviously filming different days and, you know, uh, uh, just kind of reusing these guys left and right. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think they 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 ever thought in a million years that people right. like us would be dissecting <laughs> yeah. it and being like, wait, that guy just went that way. Now he's walking back this way. What the yeah. hell did that happen? No, but, yeah. of course they didn't. But, but that was when uh, uh, Kirk excused himself from the uh, uh, you know the judgment that was going on in the bar. And as he's walking out, just as he walks out, a real Shaw walks in. Uh, the attorney, played by Joan Marshall. Now, here's the interesting thing about Joan Marshall, who, before her appearance on Star Trek, actually had a connection to to Star Trek producer Gene Kuhn, because it was in the original pilot, the original pilot for the Munsters, which was not aired, I think, until the the, uh, uh, about maybe 20 years ago or so. The original pilot for the Munsters was it was not Lily played by Yvonne DiCarlo. The uh, Herman Munster's wife was named Phoebe, and Phoebe was played by Joan Marshall. Mm. And the Munster's pilot was developed in detail by Gene Kuhn. So there's that How connection. Funny. That's really interesting. So, so yeah, so Joan Marshall did not did not play Phoebe on the Munsters. It was Yvonne DeCarlo was Lily. But Joan Marshall also did do TV like uh, Bold Adventure and also The Twilight Zone, 77 Sunset Strip, all those shows that all the, all the character actors were doing back in the day. When did the Munsters premiere? The Munsters was 64. So I, I don't know this at all, but my bet is this is a, I'm sorry, 
that you didn't get to be in the, this is a consolation prize. <laughs> yeah, consolation. You know, we, 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 the con, it's the consolation prize. Um, and, and, as she, and as she comes in, she gives a long look to, the, to Captain Kirk as he goes away, and McCoy says, If you have any doubt, that was indeed Captain James Kirk of the Enterprise. Which she already knows, because she is a friend. <laughs> and a I, love, friend. <laughs> I love McCoy's line. It's like, all of my old friends look like doctors. All of his look like you. That's a great line. <laughs> it is, although there can be pretty doctor's bones. Like, it's, it's, not, it's not impossible. Well, you might as well join me for a drink. With this inquiry coming up, he's going to need all the friends he can get. That scene was done in one take, by the way, the scene wow. between DeForest Kelly and Joan Marshall, because uh, director Mark Daniels was starting to fall behind that day in production. And, you know, Star Trek was a, was was allotted six production days and it, it usually did go over by by a half a day and sometimes a full day. But, you know, Mark Daniels was kicking butt on Star Trek. He did, you know, the man trap, he did the naked time and he was going to do the menagerie, which was right after court martial. So he was not going to fall behind. He was a very pushy director, according to cinematographer, Jerry Finnerman, but uh, he was a great director too. Recording inquiry matter, Captain Kirk, James T. Subject circumstances of death, Lieutenant Commander Finney. It's time for the inquiry. And we first hear some of the basic facts. And one of the most important things they talk about is Kirk's relationship with Finney. He was an instructor at the academy when I was a midshipman, but that didn't stand in the way of our beginning a close friendship. And so Finney was above him at this point. It's common knowledge that something happened to your friendship. It's no secret. And then we hear this story. Basically, Kirk found him making a very, very dangerous mistake, and he reported Finney. He had been at the academy for an unusually long time as an instructor. The delay he felt looked bad on his record. My action, he believed, made things worse. And he feels that that is what kept him from becoming a commander, and that ruined their friendship. You know, what's interesting about the scene is that there's so much exposition going on in this scene, but it's all done in a way where where it makes sense that that you're finding out in this way. You know, sometimes you watch movies, you watch TV shows, and there's so much exposition. Like, I remember the scene in uh, the Star Trek 2009 movie where young, you know, Chris Pine, Captain Kirk, meets Spock Prime for the first time. And Spock Prime is telling him all about, like, you know, how, how they got into this mess. And it felt like, okay, let's just, you know, purge it all out there yeah. and- but in this episode, that exposition is crucial to the evolving narrative. It's, it's organic because it's part of the scene. He's testifying and giving a deposition, and it, and it all works great. And again, you're finding so much about Kirk's backstory. And uh, I, I just, you know, again, as a Kirk fan, I thought that was really cool to hear about his, his background. Well, and yeah, I, I, would, I would stay away from the USS Republic as well. I think that's also the ship Captain Pike is on when he has his accident as disfigured. <laughs> oh, Jeez, really? you're right. Wow. <laughs> um, well, and, and this is something I want to put forward, is that I think, having watched this this last time, I don't think this reprimand is why Finney didn't advance. I think that is the lie he's told himself. And mm. I think there's a lot more wrong with this guy. And, I, and this happens sometimes where you – you don't really want to say, listen, you're just not captain material. You don't want to say that to someone. And you kind of give them, oh, well, you came out of the academy a little bit late and there's a little thing on your resume. I don't think that's it at all. 
I don't think Finney was ever capable of commanding a starship. And that's the reality. So you think, and actually that's a really good point. So you think it wasn't, it wasn't the bad mark that Kirk gave him. It was that Finney used that bad mark as an excuse yes. for his failure to advance. And he looked at Kirk as someone to blame for his own shortcomings. Exactly. That's what I think. That I, I, that makes sense. That make, You know why else that makes sense, Dave? Because when you look at Finney towards the end of the episode, he's so unhinged yeah. and so off his rocker and so irrational and so crazy that, Steve, that makes more sense than anything. Um, and then we find out the details on the ion storm, which and Kirk is just telling what the facts are that they hit an ion storm. He sends Finney to the pod and Stone asks, why Finney? His name was at the top of the duty roster. If he blamed you, he may have blamed me that he never rose to command a ship, but I don't assign jobs on the basis of who blames me. It was Finney's turn and I assigned him. What I love about this is that Kirk is really above this conflict because mm-hmm. I think Kirk's character, he knows this guy ha- hates him. It's not that he doesn't care. It's that it doesn't affect him. That's a great moment because, you know, Stone's just, he's just in there trying to, yeah. and Kirk isn't having any of it. He's like, I don't care. This has nothing to do with anything. I'm running a starship. Yeah. You know, it was this guy's turn. That's he got a sign just like anyone would. And the way Shatner plays this is perfect. Like, I mean, Shatner was so on point not just in this episode, but throughout the first season and even the second season. All, all the talk about how Shatner like laid it on too thick, that didn't happen until season three because the scripts weren't as good. If you watch the first two seasons of the original series, William Shatner was right on point as Kirk. And he was never, I don't think until, at least until uh, Boston Legal, he was never better as an actor. But he he's shutting Stone down, but not in a forceful way. He's shutting him down in a confident way. Everything was by the book. He was next. He was up. That was it. He's almost, you know, annoyed that Stone, having been a starship captain, would would even suggest this as something that's relevant. Something just occurred to me is that one of the things that you have to do as a leader is you have to put aside your emotions. You have to do it a lot, either when things are disastrous and you can't let that show or when you have you're going to have personal feelings towards all the people you're working with. And those personal feelings shouldn't affect whatever is right for the ship. That's what you do. And it occurred to me that this is. Also, like the Spock logic emotion split, a leader has to do that too. They have to be able to separate those things out. And then we get to the moment where he jettisons the pod. He says he signaled a yellow alert. That's Warren's Finney. And then... Then we began encountering pressure, variant, stress, force seven, the works. I finally signaled a red alert. Finney knew he had a matter of seconds. I gave him those seconds and more. Then why, Captain, does the computer log from your ship, made automatically at the time, indicate that you were still on yellow alert when you jettisoned and not on red? And the way Kirk pauses. I don't know. He's stumped. Stone asks, could the computer be wrong? And I love this response. Mr. Spark is running a survey right now, but the odds are next to impossible. That is an incredibly honest and honorable statement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, he doesn't mm-hmm. try to deny it. He, do, he goes, yeah, the, uh, this is what the reality is. The odds are the computer does not make a mistake. And, you know, it's at that moment where Stone, in an attempt to show some sympathy and compassion, sort of like shuts off the recorder. And then he says to, to, to Kirk. Now, look, Jim, not one man in a million could do what you and I have done. Commander Starship. So he's trying to, to appeal 
man to man, captain to captain, so to speak, as someone who is trying to save his friend and his colleague's career by saying, you know what, fess up to it, take a desk job, and we'll just wash our hands of the whole thing. And Kirk does not want, well, he doesn't deserve a desk job, as we as we, as we have seen in a, you know, a Star Trek The Motion Picture in the Wrath of Khan. He does not do well with desk jobs. He needs to be in that center seat. But he knows where Stone is going. And that's when he gets defensive and stands up for himself. Is that the way you see it? That's the way my report will read if you cooperate. Physical breakdown, possibly even mental collapse. Possibly. I'd be admitting that a man died because... Admit nothing. Say nothing. Let me bury the issue here and now. And it's for the good of the service because no starship captain has ever stood trials, ever been court-martialed. And something, Dave, that you said and something, Scott, that you said, I want to combine. I don't think Stone has any faith in Kirk. I think he 100% believes the computer. I think he thinks that Kirk did mess up. I think he thinks he did panic. And I think he thinks he's being nice. And I and I think, you know, based on, Dave, what you said is Kirk has been so successful, so young, that there is a bit of a, this guy can't be that good, or a yeah. bit of a jealousy, or a bit of a comeuppance. And the thing that you said a moment ago, Scott, which is that the Enterprise is the only ship to return, is that the idea of a captain messing up that's actually the norm. It is so hard to be a starship captain that essentially none of them are going to bring their ships back. Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. it isn't that unexpected that Kirk has a physical breakdown, possibly mental collapse. That is actually fairly reasonable based on what you said, Scott. This starship captain thing is real, real hard. And when Stone says, I won't have the service smeared, that is when we see our boy take action like he doesn't just snap back at stone he gets up and gets in his face yeah and he stares stone down I'm thinking of the service i won't have it smeared by what commodore stone and then stone gets up and faces him the kid gloves are off by an evident perjurer who's either covering up his bad judgment his cowardice or something that's as worse. far as you go sir these two actors percy rodriguez and william shatner they play this scene out and in a way that I think we all take for granted, Dave and Steve, that for a science fiction show in 1966, to have the power of this dialogue, to have the power of these performances, the class, the top-notch level of these actors right there in this scene. And the fact that you had Percy Rodriguez playing such a, uh, a top-ranking character who, who was of color in the 60s, um, Hello, that's a pretty bold moment, and it's a, such a great scene by, by any measure, even by today's TV standards. It is such a great scene, the back and forth that goes on between Kirk and Stone. I'm telling you I was there, on the bridge. I know what happened. I know what I did. It's in the transcript, and computer transcripts don't lie. Now, I'm telling you, Captain, either you accept a permanent ground assignment or... The whole disciplinary way to Starfleet Command is going to light right on your neck. So that's the way we do it now. Sweep it under the rug and me along with it. Not in your life. I intend to fight. Then you draw a general court. Draw it? I demand it. And right now, Commodore Stone, right now. I mean, it's so great. Ah, such a great yeah. scene. You know, I did the same thing you did, Scott, which is uh, I held a tape, an old Panasonic tape recorder up and I recorded all of these episodes. And my family and I, would, we would go uh, camping to this 
campground every year in, in August for two weeks where you rented a cabin. And so I would bring that tape recorder and I would put it under my pillow at night and I would put my head on the pillow <laughs> and I would listen to episodes. And that episode, I listened to that scene one night in this cabin, I don't know, 15, 20 times. And the next morning I got up and I went out to go have breakfast and my brothers and sisters were sitting out at the table. And I forget what I said. I said something and they were making fun of me about Star Trek like they always did. And <laughs> then they started quoting that scene to me because they had all heard it in these <laughs> walls of this cabin. And they just like, I wasn't even there. It was like, my sister said, you draw general court. And my brother said, draw it. I demand it. And I was like, okay, okay. Got it, got you, it. you know what, Dave, I, I got to tell you that when I was recording episodes on my tape recorder, I actually got really good at taking out the commercials. Oh, I yeah. was like, I was like an expert at that, but That's I had the only about- way to do it. Yeah, come on. So I had about, I guess, a dozen cassette tapes. So between those cassette tapes and the photo novels, which those 12 photo novels are like the rosebud of my Star Trek collection. I love those photo novels and they're, I still think they're great. Um, but that was, you know, this is the days before VCRs and, and certainly before streaming services and Blu-rays and videotapes and betas. And, and this was that, you know, we had to work for our Star Trek. We had yeah. to work at it to be fans. And, and, and these episodes, so many of them were like radio plays. They, they lent themselves so much to just the audio. Oh, it was great. It was great. I still have like 40 of them somewhere in a box. In oh, wow. The that's very awesome. cool. Yeah. The, um, uh, I, I know that we were talking about a lot of stuff, but I actually think the point you make is so important about these being like radio plays is that there is a huge difference between science fiction as created by Star Trek in the mid sixties and science fiction as we see it today, because mm -hmm. science fiction today is largely action movies or mm -hmm, action mm -hmm. TV. It focuses yep. on action and special effects and Star Trek of the mid sixties was about ideas. It didn't focus on action and special effects. Very true. So in the earlier versions, there were some very interesting differences. One of them being that Samuel Cogley, the attorney who, who defends Kirk, was actually two people, uh, Samuel Cogley Jr. and Samuel Cogley Sr. Uh, hmm. The other thing is that the prosecuting attorney of Shaw was a man, not a woman. Uh, the other thing was that Finney was accidentally jettisoned and was was alive and well on an asteroid waiting to get picked up. Um, I don't know how that would have looked. That all sounds very lost in space to me. But this is the other very interesting aspect of the earlier version of Court Martial that, that I'm glad did not survive. It was that the Enterprise computer was far more advanced and intelligent than than the enterprise computer that we know. The enterprise computer had a mind of its own and it was called the information reception and retrieval unit. They actually had uh, a, an acronym for it, the IRRU. And the IRRU had a mind of its own and was actually jealous of Captain Kirk and wanted Kirk to be found guilty. So the enterprise computer played its own part in setting up Kirk to be guilty of the death of Finney. Now, while the Enterprise is advanced, 23rd century starship, the technology should not overwhelm humanity. Like the Enterprise should be at the service of its crew. 
not the other way around. And I mean, Kirk, the Enterprise is his baby. It's his yeah. ship. Putting and, him at odds with it that way would have been very, you know, it's it's a great thread that they use in the when they do in the Ultimate Computer because this new thing has come in and put him at odds with the ship. But his relationship with the Enterprise is a keystone of the of the entire series to me. I mean, uh, uh, to to kind of mess with that, I, I I wouldn't have enjoyed that at all. Like well, like when you get to Star Trek the Motion Picture and he's taking his trip around the Enterprise uh, with Scotty in the in the pod and he sees the Enterprise for the first time in two and a half years, that look on his face, like this is his girl. Uh, you know, now I know why it's called she and. The, the fact that like the original, the earlier story idea had the Enterprise actually conspiring against Kirk, I am so glad that Gene Kuhn had the wherewithal to uh, to take that away. <laughs> Even putting aside all of your points, which I agree with, part of the key to writing a good story is you got to figure out what your story is about. And there's that, you know, the moment which is not actually supposed to be taken seriously, but in Amadeus, where the emperor says, there's too many notes is that the story has to be what the story has to be. And I think Star Trek is perfectly capable, as we saw in What Little Girls Are Made Of, in dealing with ideas of consciousness and technology and stuff like that. And as you point out, Dave, the ultimate computer does that very well. But this is that's not what this is about. What, they, what I think they found that it was about is the things we've been talking about. Did Kirk make a mistake? Did he act out of vengeance? How do people feel about him and watching this? And if we had done that enterprise thing, that would all distracted from this. Absolutely. It would have taken us out of that story. Well, Steve, take us into act two. We're back at the bar and there is a real Shaw and Kirk goes to her and it is immediately the flirty, romantic <laughs> Kirk. Dr. McCoy said you were here. I should have felt it in the air like static electricity. I love that flirty romantic Kirk. Like they, like when you watch him with Shaw, I mean, like this is the guy who who gave me confidence to ask out girls when I was a right, right, exactly. Right? Dave, when, when I when I watched The Conscience of the King, and I was in high school and I was trying to hit on girls, and I would take you know, I would you know take a girl out on a date. I try to impress her. Yes, I actually said the line. Worlds may change, galaxies disintegrate, but a woman always <laughs> remains a woman. Like, like how, how'd that work? Did it work? It never worked. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to point out a very small acting note, which is her line is flattery will get you everywhere. The key to how the actor performs that line is that the emphasis is on you. She says flattery will get you everywhere, which means the reason she emphasizes that word is that flattery won't get everyone else everywhere. It's just about Kirk. Right. Um, and he is trying to have a romantic conversation and she is trying to make, tell him that things are serious. I'm a lawyer in the judge advocate's office. Remember? I remember. Let's forget. And I think part of what's happening is that Kirk doesn't want to deal with the serious stuff. Mm -hmm. There's real serious pain and he doesn't want to deal with it right now. That's why he says, I don't want, uh, let's not talk shop. Yeah. There's something else really interesting that I, I love about this, which is there's times across the run of the series where they go out of their way to talk about the fact that you're not just a spaceship captain, you're a starship captain. Mm -hmm. And these starships are very unique. It's like uh, Charlie X, you know, oh, this is a starship, Charlie. But 
but also uh, Merrick in Bread and Circuses. Yeah, it's not, it's not a spaceship, a starship. A it's a starship. Yep. Yeah, and so that's interesting, too, is that, you know, and, and that's what she says to him. You're not an ordinary human. You're a starship captain, and you've stepped into scandal. If there's any way they can do it, they'll slap you down hard and permanently for the good of the service. So I, I just love that, that there's this even unwitting world building going on, you know, that we can all enjoy later on. Well, even, even in The Enemy Within, it's Spock who says to Kirk, or the, the, uh, the good side of Kirk, you're the captain of the ship. You haven't the right to be anything less than perfect in the eyes of the crew. That's a 428 people, and that's a reputation in all of Starfleet. Starfleet, which, by the way, the words Starfleet and Starfleet Command are used for the first time in court martial, and that is thanks to Gene Kuhn. Ah, these are that's that's it's so it's so huge because you think about the weird things they were talking about, what the Enterprise was doing, like deliver hot peppers and stuff, you know, and now like we now (laughs) we got Starfleet. It makes much more sense. The prosecution will build its case on the basis of Kirk versus the computer. Now, if your attorney tries to defend on that basis, you won't have a chance. And of course, that is exactly how the attorney will defend him and how he is going to win. And then he goes, maybe you should be my attorney. No, I'm busy. I think all of us know at that point, at that awkward moment. But even if it's that, that's a subtle hint. Her delivery Mm -hmm. of the bomb is still a big shock, not just to Kirk, but I think to everybody watching. You still haven't told me how you know so much about what the prosecution's going to do. Because, Jim Kirk, my dear old love, I am the prosecution. And I have to do my very best to have you slapped down hard. Broken out of the service. In disgrace. Ouch! <laughs> I mean, yeah, For wow. both of them. Her reaction as well, her delivering that line is full of pain. So a couple of things about this. If we can just say that the law has totally changed by the time they get there, but prosecuting attorneys aren't usually old lovers of the people they're prosecuting and they don't recommend defense attorneys for them. This is all really, or really lay out the prosecution's uh, strategy. <laughs> yeah. That's really, that's that tends to be frowned upon in the law. Let's meet Samuel T. Cogley, attorney at law. Let's meet Elisha Cook Jr., who plays Samuel T. Cogley, attorney at law. He is a very familiar face, not just back in the day when he made this episode, but to this day, because he has done more than two hundred screen appearances, especially back in the 40s during the big film noir heavy era. Uh, He has been in very big films like The Big Sleep, The Great Gatsby, The Maltese Falcon. And he was in, uh, more recently, he was in 13 episodes of Magnum P.I. as Francis Icepick Hofstetler. (laughs) Uh, And I just thought he was terrific. And Dave, I know you do too. <laughs> I love Samuel T. Cogley. Uh, and it's funny, about three weeks ago, we showed our kids the Maltese Falcon just to show them uh, a bogey movie. And uh, and there he was. And I had totally forgotten that he was in it. And the whole time, all I'm seeing is, you know, Samuel T. Cogley is a young hoodlum. <laughs> <laughs> Did he say anything about books? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you can tell how much this actor loves this part. 
he is having so much fun throughout this whole thing. And I love that he just decided to move into Kirk's quarters, brings all of his books. Uh, and and <laughs> Shatner's really funny in this whole scene. And, yeah, he and, is. <laughs> I hope I'm not crowding you. Tabata, don't you like folks? Oh, I like them fine. But a computer takes less space. And his reaction to the word computer is fantastic. I got one of these in my office. Contains all the precedents. A synthesis of all the great legal decisions written throughout time. I never use it. I think that is a reaction that is so relatable in the age of tablets and smartphones and laptops where they're all over the place. And we have lost so much of the human connection because we are so just humanity has become so dependent on computers, big and small and tiny. But at the same time, even by today's standards, who doesn't just love to just pick up a really good book and read a really good book? <laughs> what, what's so sad, Samuel T. Cogley be so disappointed in me because 20 years ago, I, you know, I, I'm very always been a really avid reader and I love books and keeping books and the feel of books and the smell of books <laughs> and all that stuff. And now I listen to books. Oh, wow. You know, my, my library is on the Steve. phone. Yeah. You've crossed over to the dark side. It's true. It's true. Books, young man. Books, thousands of them. If time wasn't so important, I'd show you something. My library, thousands of books. What would be the point? This is where the law is. Not in that homogenized, pasteurized, synthesized. Do you want to know the law? The ancient concepts in their own language? Learn the intent of the men who wrote them? The Moses to the tribunal of Alpha 3. I love, this was the first Star Trek episode to be filmed where they went one step further on things. And, I, and you know, Star Trek fans love, like, when you hear Spock uh, say something about history, when he's talking about the great uh, dictators, you know, uh, Ramsley's, Hitler, Lee Kwan, or, you know, in this episode, like we're about to hear, or even David Marcus in, in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, uh, they'll, they'll remember you with one breath, Newton, Einstein, Surak. You have to be either an obsessive crackpot who's escaped from his keeper or Samuel T. Cogley, attorney at law. You're right on both counts. <laughs> but you're right, Steve. Kirk uh, Shatner really is funny in this scene. Need a lawyer? And Kirk's response. I'm afraid so. It's such a subtle, vulnerable moment. I love that the uh, I love that the starbase quarters that they give him has like a, like his room rider has, and there should be Sorry and Brandy on the <laughs> yeah. right, right at the entrance waiting for me. <laughs> I am a starship captain after all. If you, if, if you had a choice right now between Sorry and Brandy, Romulan Ale, or Tranya, which beverage would you prefer to have, Dave? Uh, sorry, Brandy, because I love the bottle and I, I have a, a replica bottle of it. So I'm, that's my choice. Sorry, Brandy. Uh, I'm going to go with the Romulan ale because it's illegal. <laughs> <laughs> that is, I'm real tempted. I'm, I, I think I'm going to go with the, the Romulan ale, too. I think because it's blue. Yeah. It's, it's blue. not green. It's blue. <laughs> the the Okudas had a little. They they had a little uh, Scotty dog. I forget what kind of dog it is. Little Maltese or whatever it was, and they named it Tranya. So I can never go for Tranya because that's a, that's all I see is that little cute little dog. <laughs> oh, Scooter T Rocket Boy is one of their dogs, right? <laughs> yeah, they they're they're the best. I love Mike and Denise. This court is now in session, and now suddenly we're in a courtroom drama. And I was just thinking, like last week. 
It was a castaway story with the Galileo seven. Before that, we were doing Shakespeare. Before that, there were these kids that lived forever and then turned into mutants who died. And then before that, we had mad scientists. Like it's amazing what this show is able to do. Yes, sir. Absolutely. <laughs> it's interesting that they made her, I wonder what the choice was by uh, making a real Shaw, a, a JAG lawyer, but making yeah. Cogley a civilian lawyer. Yeah. Mm. That's at the really, Starbase. That's kind of really an interesting, interesting choice. I, I actually have a question. What is Cogley doing at Starbase 11? <laughs> Reading books, man. Like, yeah. like why do they, yeah, why and is he there? Chasing. Like, like with all his books on a Starbase, uh, like, why do they need someone like like Cogley well, at Starbase well, Eleven? How many people? How many people are at a Starbase? That's a great question, Dave. You you were on a Starbase. Yeah. <laughs> Five or six. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. No, I I don't know. I mean, from the map painting, it doesn't look like it's a, a an enormous facility. Yeah. I don't know. Thousands, I would say. I mean, if it's thousands, people need lawyers. No, that's true. Yeah, that's true. maybe just, he was on his way to somewhere else. Actually, if anybody has any, anybody listening has any ideas what an attorney might be doing on on Starbase Eleven, lay the hell out there uh, in space, the final frontier. Write it down on our Facebook page, Enterprise Incidents, and let us know. <laughs> so we're in court. Is this our the first appearance of the dress uniforms? Yeah. Thank you, Steve Morris. Yes, this is the first appearance of the Starfleet dress uniforms. Captain Kirk. Do you consent to the service of Lieutenant Shaw as prosecuting officer and to myself as president of the court? And there's a look and he says, I do, sir. I think he should say no. <laughs> I think, you know, I, you know, I had a relationship with her. She probably shouldn't be my uh, prosecuting attorney. I look at it the other way. I look at it like it. he looks at it as an advantage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Be. Okay. I, I actually agree with you, Dave. Like, like bring it on. Like I don't care if there's it, it doesn't matter whether there's any any bias here. I did nothing wrong and I stand by that. Right. That's true. That's true. He pleads not guilty. I love that music stab when he says not guilty. Not guilty. And the first witness we call is Mr. Spock. Spock, serial number S one seven nine two seven six SP. And we hear the computer reads off his rank and his position and commendations. This is something that's going to come up uh, later. And the first question is, Mr. Spock, as first officer, you know a great deal about computers. I know all about them. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) It's like, no, you don't. Nobody knows all about everything. (laughs) That doesn't make sense. But he is supremely confident. Do you know of any malfunction which has caused an inaccuracy in the Enterprise computer? Negative. Now, the star date. The computer is inaccurate. Here you have someone who is logical, someone who has, like he, like he even says, knows all about computers. And the computer is giving evidence against his commanding officer and his, and his closest friend. I always looked at the conflict of Spock being torn between the computer and his commander, between actual logical evidence and the uh, fate of his closest friend and commanding officer. It's such a it's such a, a powerful moment that actually was not played strongly enough. Like when you look at some of the deeper episodes that explore the relationship between Kirk and Spock, like in Obsession or Wrath of Khan, 
that there was kind of a missed opportunity here to lean into the friendship between these guys. Like they could have done more with that. I mean, I, look, I, I love the episode, but look, look what Kirk did for Spock in a mock time. Uh, and look what Spock did in return in a mock time. Um, those are the aspects, you know, the, the friendship between Kirk and Spock and McCoy that I, I, I've gravitated towards and have held on to for the last, you know, 50 years of, of being a, a fan. I think there's this scene is a little bit with Spock is a little bit strange, partially for the reason that you say he is supremely confident and logical and yet is kind of saying a thing that's somewhat illogical. And he he does care a lot about the, this guy. And that is why. He isn't actually can't be 100 percent logical because Spock does really have feelings. But that being said, I love this line when she asks him why he thinks this. He says, I am half Vulcanian. Vulcanians do not speculate. I speak from pure logic. If I let go of a hammer on a planet that has a positive gravity, I need not see it fall to know that it has, in fact, fallen. That's a great line. I also love the line where she says, well, then how do you dispute the log? And he says, I don't dispute it. I merely state it's wrong. Yeah. You know, it's a, in later episodes, like in Mirror, Mirror, when Kirk says to, to Mirror Spock, you know, you can defend yourself better than anyone in the fleet. You know, imagine Spock preparing for a trial. You would be hard pressed to, you know, you would not want him to be your prosecuting attorney. And so here, this is almost kind of an act of rebellion in a lot of ways because Spock, he knows that this example he's giving means nothing. It doesn't matter in the eyes of the law. Right. He knows that. And it's that kind of desperation from, from the Galileo 7. You know what I mean? It's that he's, he's doing whatever he can to say whatever he can. And it is supremely not logical what he's doing. <laughs> he knows it. And to me, that kind of speaks to their friendship as well. One thing I want to point out is that ask the court to instruct the witness not to speculate. And after Spock very passionately says, It is impossible for Captain Kirk to act out of panic or malice. It is not his nature. In your opinion. And there's a pause, and he says, Yes, in my opinion. And we get another music sting. Thank you. <laughs> and then well, they go, It's your witness to Cogley. No questions. You know, and you, you know that he just is like, okay, this is all just passing time. He just wants to get Kirk up on the stand, but he's still got a couple people to go. Uh, next up is the personnel officer whose name is not given, uh, but that's okay. <laughs> her, her tape doesn't even have a name. <laughs> and it's possible that at one point early on in the development of this, of this story, because Yeoman Rand was featured prominently in the earlier outlines mm. before she was written out of the series. And Dave, you, you know, you've listened to our other episodes. You know how much Steve and I really have grown to appreciate Rand's contributions and, and especially the relationship between Kirk and Rand. But, but by the time this episode was ready to film, uh, Grace Lee Whitney was gone from the show and they have the personnel officer who uh, is – uh, looking, uh, uh, you know, no name given. And while she's giving her testimony, I I got to credit whether this was written or this was a directorial choice. But while she's giving her testimony, Kirk is sitting, listening to the testimony. And then he looks over his shoulder at Jamie, who's sitting right behind him. And she is staring at him the whole time with this look of pain 
and this look of judgment on her face saying, how dare you? So in front of him and behind him, like all eyes are on him in an unfavorable way. And he just maintains his composure. And I never appreciated the significance of that particular moment with Jamie, you know, the look and the way the camera zooms in on her. It's, it's a much more powerful scene that I ever gave a credit for. You know what's occurring to me that you're, you're helping me see is that we've seen Kirk face up against all these different kinds of challenges, strategic challenges, uh, physical challenges, uh, psychological challenges by being split in two or by the, in the naked time. This is a unique challenge because what this is, is it's his reputation that is mm-hmm. challenged. Mm-hmm. It's people mm-hmm. don't believe him. People don't trust him. That's something completely different that he has to face. And he has to face it like Captain Kirk. He has to do the same thing he does to every other challenge. Keep it together. Keep his mind thinking clearly. Stay calm. Do the right thing. And guess what, Steve? Because we've been doing this series in production order and because we have learned so much about Kirk from the episode The Enemy Within through his light side, his good side, and his dark side, it was the strength of uh, of moments like this in, in court martial, that it was the dark side of Kirk that gave him the confidence to maintain, like like his innocence, that maintain you know g- gave him the strength to stand firm that he knows what happened. He was there. Well, I've I've loved the insight that that you guys have linked to that episode time and time again. Uh, you did it on uh, what are little girls made of as well. Had they planned for this? No, I don't. Of course not. But but it works. And and in the canon of the show, it's really great. And I love that you guys keep using that as a touchstone. My my dad had an expression, which is he would always say, luck will beat brains any day. And I think part of the enduring nature of the show is actually they got lucky. You know, yeah. there are a lot of things that fell into place in a way that gave it much better. You know, just like the 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 ships that you were tracking down. It's like if it hadn't worked, no one would take the time to do that thing or be excited about finding it out. It's time for McCoy to testify. And it's funny. She asked the exact same question that she asked Spock. She asked, you are an expert in space psychology. And where Spock says, I know all about computers. McCoy says, I know something about it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Entirely different kind of personality. And he is where Spock was declarative and clear. McCoy is cagey. Psychologically, Doctor, is it possible that Lieutenant Finney blamed Kirk for the incident? It's possible. Now, let us hypothesize, Doctor. Is it normal for a person to return affection for hatred? Now, in the previous witness or two witnesses ago, she told Spock, please instruct the witness not to speculate. And now this is the most ridiculously speculative thing she's asking from the doctor. And Samuel T. Cogley does not object. I will contend that he is, as much as I love him, a terrible lawyer. <laughs> he does almost nothing in this. Why aren't you asking cross-examining? What is your damn plan, Sam? Oh, you know what, Steve? Luck played a very big factor in the ultimate outcome for Cogley in this episode because Absolutely. he was ready for the defense to rest. Yeah. And then he got lucky because Spock and McCoy came in and changed the game, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. There's other stuff. There, there, I have a whole thing. When we get to the fourth act, there's a whole <laughs> bunch of stuff I never saw before that I saw this time. Hypothetically. 
Would not Captain Smith begin to hate Lieutenant Commander Jones once he learned that Lieutenant Commander Jones hated and detested him? And this is creating the argument that because Finney hated Kirk, Kirk felt his hatred and hated him back. And by the way, the prosecution's tactic here is not to say Kirk panicked. It's not to say Kirk made a mistake. It is to say Kirk murdered Finney. That yeah. is how she's prosecuting him. Some ex-girlfriend. Yeah, that's yeah, right. a lot. <laughs> Divorce Kelly's acting is just, it's really wonderful and subtle. Uh, yeah. you know, at, the, at the end of this, there's a scene where he pulls his hand away from the truthometer or whatever that thing is he has his hand on. Yeah. And he kind of taps it in resignation because he's just, again, he, he's been maneuvered by this attorney uh, to say something he really didn't want to say. You know, it harkens to something you guys have mentioned before uh, on the show, which is acting shouldn't just happen when you're delivering lines. Right. He, he, it's a really wonderful performance. I, I, I would, uh, I would ask you people to to, to check that out because it's just a it's just a great little moment where he's resigned to, oh, damn it, you know, I, he just feels horrible for what he's just had to say about his friend. I had this happen to me. I was a witness in a case. And it, it was not a situation I knew a whole lot about. And it had to do with some crew members on the film that I directed. And the prosecuting attorney, it wasn't prosecuting because it's a civil case, but the attorney for the other side was uh, questioning me and I was doing really fine. And then I said a thing in a certain way that could have been misinterpreted. And the attorney went, no further questions. And he walked away. And I'm looking at the the attorney for the people that I knew. And I'm like, going, ask me another question. Like, let me explain what I just said. And he didn't ask me anything. And they said, step down. I'm like, oh, no, it was terrible. <laughs> just felt absolutely terrible. And now, of course, they say, you're witness. And he says, no questions. Mr. Codley, you've listened to testimony from three witnesses. And in neither instance have you availed yourself of your right to cross-examine. Have you abrogated that right? By the way, abrogated is a really good word. <laughs> he says, <laughs> and again, I love Cogley. As much as I don't think he's a good lawyer, I love everything he says in this episode. Well, sir, the truth is I've been holding back till we get this preliminary business out of the way. I'd like to call Captain Kirk to the stand. There we go. Like, let's cut to the chase. Let's bring Captain Kirk up. And by the way, this was the episode where I memorized Captain Kirk's serial number, which it's uh, <laughs> SC 937-01776-CEC. Yes. Yes, sir. Right on. That is amazing. It's, I know I've said it before, but it's so funny, the different kinds, different kinds of geeks in the world. And I never did that. I never... I didn't have a tape recording. I didn't have the picture books. I just watched the shows. Well, let me tell you something, Steve. You got to go on eBay and get the 12 photo novels because those photo novels are just so special. They came out in 1977 and 1978. They did 12 episodes. It was Sitting on the Edge of Forever, Where No Man Has Gone Before, Trouble with Tribbles, A Taste of Armageddon, Metamorphosis, The Galileo, uh, uh, All Our Yesterdays, The Galileo 7, uh, A Piece of the Action, Devil in the Dark, uh, Day of the Dove, uh, The Deadly Years, and A Mock Time. You've got to get these photo novels. Well, They're can I just download the PDFs? No, you got to get the books. <laughs> Damn you, Steve. 300 full-color action scenes from each and every episode. Did you memorize Kirk's commendations? 
Uh, that I did not memorize, but I'm sure you have them down. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't write them down. It is a long list, and uh, you'll play right now. Axenar, the Grand Kite Order of Tactics, the Pranteris <laughs> Ribbon of Commendation, Classes First and Second, Starfleet Medal of Honor, Starfleet Silver Palm with Cluster, Starfleet Citation for Conspicuous Gallantry, Karagite Order of Heroism. Go, Dave, go! Is that just I think out, that's out of your, out of your wait, wait, memory? No, wait. No, may, no, it's may not. May it please the court. <laughs> wait, this, this is where Shaw interrupts and says, may it please the court. The prosecution concedes the inestimable record of Captain Kirk. I wouldn't want to slow the wheels of progress. And a real Shaw starts to sit down and then... But then on the other hand, I wouldn't want those wheels to run over my client in their unbridled haste. And then we get a whole bunch more of Kirk's medals and citation until even Cogley has heard enough. I wouldn't want to slow things up too much. His uh, accomplishments for someone who, let's see, if in the deadly years, Kirk says, I'm 34 years old. So that was the, the star date for, for the deadly years, what started with a three. So that meant that the Enterprise had been in space for three years. The star date for court-martial, the first number is a two. So that means the Enterprise is in its second year on its five-year mission. So in this episode, Captain Kirk is 33 years old and he has all of those accomplishments. That's impressive. Charges of malice have been raised. There was no malice. Lieutenant Commander Finney was a member of my crew and that's exactly the way he was treated. I absolutely love Shatner's performance in this scene. He is so, you know, you talked about Scott several times, the not big Shatner. He is so self-contained. He's mm -hmm. so, so self-possessed. He's so confident. And he it gives the sense of speaking the simple truth. You have heard some of the details of my record. This was not my first crisis. It was one of many. And the thing is, at this point in the series... We know that. We know exactly what Spock said, is that we know Captain Kirk's character. It is not possible for this guy to panic. I did what my experience and training required me to do. I took the proper steps in the proper order. I did exactly what had to be done, exactly when it should have been done. When you watch the scene, watch the reaction shots. Watch Ariel Shaw. Watch everyone in this room as they're listening to this. And I don't think you can listen to this guy and not believe that at least he believes he is saying the truth. It's great that he looks to stone to deliver this line. Because the steps I took and the order I took them were absolutely necessary if I were to save my ship. And nothing is more important than my ship. And that music cue that plays with it still I yep. mean, it gives me a, a kind of a nervous stomach. And I mean, it's just so powerful. And their reactions, he, he's just got this uh, blinding light of his conviction that they're all kind of like looking away a little bit. And uh, he definitely believes this. And you can't watch this, I agree, Steve, without, uh, without believing him as well. Well, and you know what I thought of when he says this line, nothing is more important than my ship? Is the naked time mm. never lose you? Totally. Never. No beach to walk on. Completely. Wow. Yeah. And that's absolutely. why the Enterprise is such a great character in this. That yeah, that's why I'm glad that they got rid of the idea with the uh, that the computer being yeah. a little too advanced. That oh, would not yeah, have totally. would not have worked. But see, you know, Steve, it's funny you you were talking about how how dialed back Shatner was in his performance, and it was at this point while he was 
you know, delivering that that monologue, uh, I wrote down in my notes, Shatner, so great, right on point, great performance. <laughs> it's so it's so good. And now we're going to have the prosecution's honestly most powerful witness. I must invite the attention of the court to this visual extract from the enterprise computer log. And now we're in a video. Now, again, it makes absolutely no sense that neither Kirk nor Samuel T. Cogley have seen this video before. That yeah. is, And yet, it's way more dramatic in the show that they haven't. The whole idea for doing these sort of flashback scenes as part of the trial, which is something that we're going to see in the very next two-part episode, yeah. The Menagerie, but it was uh, used here for the first time. Uh, but this was Gene Kuhn's idea. As the script was going through all its changes, Kuhn still had the foresight to see that there just wasn't enough movement going on right. in the episode. So he was the one who said, you got to... We got to see stuff. We got to see stuff. So that's how the whole prospect of doing the flashback with these excerpts from the computer log that we are now seeing. And I have to say, ion storms have not been good to the Enterprise or Captain Kirk. Not only did it cause this problem that led to Kirk's court-martial, but in the second season, it took Kirk and Scotty and Uhura and McCoy to another universe in Mirror Mirror. So... Ion storms equals bad. <laughs> right. So we're we're on the bridge, entering into the ion storm. Kirk says we need someone in the pod, and we hear we need somebody in the pod for reading Mr. Finney is top of duty roster, Captain. This confirms what Kirk said before. And then Kirk does something and they stop the video. Go forward with magnification on the panel. And we see him switch it to yellow alert. This is one of the other areas in remastered that I wanted to change. Oh. I wanted to kind of do a new shot where instead of those pieces of tape, those were digital words. And down below the last button underneath Jettison Pod it would have said something like ion config or something so that you could see that the captain's chair had the ability. It wasn't just that it's just not those three buttons. You know what I mean? He could configure the chair to kind of do different things and control different systems. Well, so that, that means that Dave, you were thinking what I was thinking was like, why is that, you know, he's, he's the, the captain's chair. He's only going to be able to have a few buttons and pod jettison, uh, yeah. should not be right. one of those buttons, You're you know, right. as a permanent fixture on the captain's chair. But, you know, if it's a revolving uh, function, if it's a revolving uh, service right. where it, it could switch to other functions, that makes a whole lot more sense. Yeah, I, we just we just couldn't get to it. Can I tell you how on the same page we all are? <laughs> it, it, this is my note I had. I wrote down, weird to have that button there. Seems awfully specific. <laughs> so clearly, yes, it is a weird thing. But he does put us into yellow alert. And then we hear we have force two vibrations, force three vibrations. Stand by to get out of that, Ben. Aye, aye, sir. And this is something that Cogley actually could have played up more in defense of Kirk. Instead of calling down saying, you better get out of there, Lieutenant, he refers to him as Ben. Oh. Twice. When has Captain Kirk ever called anyone else other than, I mean, look, he even refers to uh, McCoy as Bones, which is his nickname. But, you know, you never hear him call Uhura or check, you know, not until right. Star Trek II do you hear him call him Pavel. But- He's calling this guy by his first name twice, and you're seeing that on the computer log. And, like, that's that's a definitely uh, uh, breaks the barrier of commander subordinate. 
Like he's talking to his friend, Ben, you better get out of there. I'm going to have to jettison this thing. I think it clearly shows again, Kirk has no dislike for this guy. Right. Exactly. That's my point. Well, and it's also where there are times when Kirk and Commodore Stone call each other by their first names and there are times when they don't. Those are all the little details that make this work. And then he says, steady as she goes. And Shaw says, freeze that. Freeze that. The log plainly shows the defendant's finger pressing the jettison button. The condition signal reads yellow alert. And what we get at this moment, the reaction from Kirk of seeing this and the reactions all around the room. And Kirk says, but that's not the way it happened. Oh, great. Great way to end act two. Awesome. Up to this point. Kirk has been like, no, I was there. I'm good. Uh, I've, I've got this. But his own ship's computer log is is showing him something that he didn't do. And now he is questioning himself. But by the way, you know what this made me think of? This whole computer changing the image thing, that was science fiction. Then it's not science fiction now. We mm. live in the world of burgeoning deep fakes. Yep. And we are all going to have to figure this out. This is really, really scary. And the power of computers to make somebody say something they didn't say, do something they didn't do, is only going to get better and better mm-hmm. and better. Yeah, and we, unfortunately, we're not prepared to to deal with this yet. That's you a good know? point. That's a really good and scary point. And Star Trek was way ahead of its time. It's Act 3. And now, Cogley and Kirk are not together. They are, there is some distrust. Computers don't lie. Are you suggesting that I did? I'm suggesting that maybe you did have the lapse. It was possible, you know, with the strain you were under. And Cogley is now pushing for basically a plea bargain. And Kirk, I, I don't know have, if we've ever seen him question himself in the way right. other than Enemy Within. I've spent my whole life training for decisions just like that one. My whole life. Is it possible that when the moment came? And there's a pause. And then the confidence reasserts himself. No. I know what I did. Oh, yeah. He strikes that Superman pose. Nobody better to to make the Superman reference than uh, (laughs) Mr. Up in the Sky here. But you know what? The way he says, the way that Kirk says, I spent my whole life training for moments like this. And he goes, my whole life. Like, and it hits him. Like, he has a an epiphany, a moment of clarity where he goes, my whole life. That is the moment that gives him the confidence to say, no, uh, the computer's wrong. Something's wrong. This is not what happened. Yeah, and you buy his sheer conviction here. I mean, yep. you know, this is not a person who second guesses himself. Absolutely, 100%. But there's several moments where he's such a class act, and one of them is he offers Cogley the chance to pull out. There's no place to go. Set back to court and hear the verdict. And I'm going, you are the worst lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) And I love you. He's one of my favorite characters. As a character, I adore him. Well, it's like the thing that I discover, we discovered when we were doing Miri is that, man, McCoy really says he's dead, Jim, a lot and does absolutely nothing (laughs) to try to like do some CPR or anything. And Cogley's the same thing. I'm all out of ideas. (laughs) Yes, we're done. Kirk here. Captain. I've run a complete megalite survey on the computer. I'll tell you what you found. Nothing, right? You sound bitter, Captain. And then this is the classiest moment. He says, Not bitter enough to forget to thank you for your efforts. 
Yeah. I love that line. Yeah. Great line. That's again, this is the textbook on leadership for me. I really, I, you know, this is the way you do it. I love that. Kirk says, uh, who knows, Mr. Spock, you may even beat your next captain at chess. And then they sign off and Spock is like, chess. And there's another <laughs> reference to chess. Yeah. Not poker, Mr. Spock. Chess. Yes, right. exactly. Yeah. And then in a completely unbelievable change of character, I think Jamie comes in and is now on totally on Team Kirk. I realize it wasn't his fault. I won't make any trouble. I'm glad you said in a totally unbelievable change of character because up until this episode was rolling, there was a scripted scene between Kirk and Jamie, which explains this Mm. change in character that they had a scene where she was trying to understand what happened. And it was eventually cut because again, production was falling a little bit behind, but it showed Kirk being more vulnerable with Jamie than he ever was to even Spock and McCoy Mm. in the other episodes that were filmed up to this point. So Roddenberry, who was still at the point of uh, the development of the screenplay when he was still like the day-to-day producer before Kuhn came on, Roddenberry wanted it rewritten because he felt like it was way out of character for Kirk to be so vulnerable and open with even the daughter of someone who was one of his best friends when he would never reveal his inner feelings to the likes of Spock and McCoy. So they ultimately did not shoot it for that reason. They didn't shoot it because it was, it was a, a production was running behind. Um, and that is why you have this totally out of character shift in, in support that yeah. Jamie is now it, showing. Yeah. Because it feels really shoehorned in here. I mean, it comes yeah. out of nowhere. Well, and then the, the final moment of the scene is it's again, it's, it, it's great. And it, it doesn't, make any sense at all. And it doesn't work because there's this final moment where, you know, he Cogley talks to Jamie and kind of asks her about this. And Kirk says, I have to go and change. Are you ready? And in a very traumatic moment, Cogley says, no, but I may be getting ready. What does that mean? (laughs) What does that mean? He's got some big plan. I said to Scott, when, when, I got the invite to come on the show. That was the first thing I wrote back to him. I said, can we talk about Cogley's line about when he says, no, but I may be getting ready. Like what? There is zero payoff for that. I hate that line. (laughs) I I love the line. I just don't know what it means. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because he does nothing. But what Spock is doing right now is playing chess. Well, I had to see it to believe it. Explain. They're about to lop off the captain's professional head, and you're sitting here playing chess with a computer. That is true. And you know what I thought about? I thought about our last episode, Galileo 7. If you think of the McCoy that just was with the Spock, who almost got them all killed, or who he blamed for everything that happened on that thing, to then walk in and see him playing chess... Because he's not just basing it on that moment. He's basing it on the experience he had with him last week, you know, when they yeah. were stuck on Taurus too. Spock, you're the most cold-blooded man I've ever known. Why, thank you, Doctor. I've just won my fourth game. And now McCoy is starting to understand this. Mechanically, the computer is flawless. Therefore, logically, its report of the captain's guilt is infallible. I could not accept that, however. So you tested the program bank. He programmed it for chess, and so the best he could ever help for is a draw. And I love McCoy. Well, why are you just sitting there? 
Transporter room, stand by. We're beaming down. There's a great moment when Stone says the court is now in session. They cut to a reel, and, and her look there is really well done because she knows this is it. I'm about to bury this guy. And, yeah. you know, uh, she, uh, she, she gives a, little, a, a very uh, subtle performance there that I liked. You're right. It is a great moment. And then she rests the case, and then it's Cogley's turn. And after this moment where he said, I may be getting ready, he just rests his case too. What, what do you think that was? I think that was a rem, either a remnant of a previous script or I, I, I honestly don't know. They did everything to shine a light on that moment. And everything in film language says this guy's got something up his sleeve. Something big's going to happen. Spock and McCoy burst into the into the courtroom and you, you see Spock basically telling you know, Cogley, hey, something's wrong with the ship's computer. Some new evidence has just been brought to my attention, and I'd like to ask the court to... Objection. Counsel for the defense has rested his case. And it's great that even though that the defense has rested, Stone realizes this is a person's career, and I want to hear it. If you've got some evidence, let's hear it. Of what nature is this evidence? I can't tell you. I have to show you, sir. Mr. Cogley is well known for his theatrics. That is straight out of Perry Mason. Wormberger, the prosecuting attorney, the district attorney, always would say that about Perry Mason. This is a Perry Mason thing. Counsels will kindly direct their remarks to the bench. I'd be delighted to, sir. Now that I've got something human to talk about. That is where the Cogley that we all know and love, the Cogley that we have come to admire, like this is the turning point. This is when Cogley becomes, quote unquote, Cogley, because this is where he he takes the offensive. Rights, sir. Human rights. The Bible, the Code of Hammurabi and of Justinian, Magna Carta, the Constitution of the United States, fundamental declarations of the Martian colonies, the statutes of Alpha Three. This is this monologue that Elijah Cook Jr. gives is just one for the books. It is. This monologue is amazing. And we could just say the words, but I think it'll be better, Steve, if you just play that clip right now so we can all hear Cogley's impassioned support of human rights from the Bible all the way to the statutes of Alpha 3. Scott, you got it. These documents all speak of rights, rights of the accused to a trial by his peers to be represented by counsel. The rights of cross-examination, but most importantly, the right to be confronted by the witnesses against him, a right to which my client has been denied. Your Honor, that is ridiculous. We produced the witnesses in court. My learned opponent had the opportunity to see them, cross-examine them. All but one. The most devastating witness against my client is not a human being. It's a machine, the computer log of the enterprise. And I ask this court adjourn and reconvene board that vessel. I protest, Your Honor. And I repeat, I speak of rights. A machine has none. A man must. And I love the look McCoy throws to Spock here. Upon looking at it now a couple of more times, it's almost as if McCoy, he's totally on board with what Cogley is saying. But when he throws the look to Spock, I'm I'm starting to wonder if if it's almost a look of sorrow or, 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 Kind of, you know, I feel bad for you, Spock, because I don't know. What do you guys think of that? Well, now I have to look at this look. 
because I don't have an image of it in my head. So I'm, I have the video up right now and I'm going to look at it. When you first see it, he throws the look to Spock and his look goes from one of kind of happiness at Cogley's words to this kind of look of what I first thought was, see Spock, I've always told you that. But now I'm not, I'm not so sure because it's not quite that look. It's, it's something else, I think. So I actually don't have an answer for you, which is unusual for me to not have an opinion. But what I could, I could tell you a little bit about what it is in terms of editing, which is that frequently you're looking for reaction shots. And here is what you do is you move back and forth through all the off camera moments and you look for moments that where actors are doing something. They're not necessarily, they're frequently not at the moment that you're cutting them in for. And frequently you want a reaction shot that has movement. So, and I'm going to do it so everyone at home can see, but it's like, so you look for a thing where an actor goes, does this, or where an actor does this. And that little bit of eye movement allows you to cut. And then rhythmically they cut together in a specific way, particularly in terms of like, if you look at there's movement from McCoy and then Spock has a movement in the next shot. And right. so frequently, yes, you are looking for reaction shots that have meaning, particularly when they're sunk to a particular piece of dialogue or emotional moment, but you're also looking visually how to keep the thing active. Because if you cut to a reaction shot where someone's still, it hurts. I just did it again for everyone to see. If you do it when they're still, it actually just pulls energy out of the scene. Um, that is a very technical reason when you're cutting, you know, yeah. and frequently, by the way, I will, uh, if, if I have someone looking down and I want them to look up, I just reverse the shot so that they're now doing what I wanted them to do. Um, <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's an old trick. It's a, it's a trick you could do easily now with computers, but it's harder later. Wow. That's a great, that's a great observation there, Dave. <laughs> and the ending of this scene where he says, my client has the right to face his accuser. And if you do not grant him that right, you have brought us down to the level of the machine. Indeed. You have elevated that machine above us. I ask that my motion be granted. More than that, gentlemen, in the name of a humanity fading in the shadow of the machine, I demand it. I demand it! The music cue that's used and the look on Commodore Stone's face. Commodore Stone has a little bit of a smile going on Mm. because... He is inspired. He is like, this guy is a great attorney after all. And he is absolutely right. Yeah, this is not a theatric. Now, the interesting thing about Elijah Coach Jr. is that Mark Daniels really had a problem working with Elijah Cook on this episode Hmm. because Cook could not remember his lines. I know it's hard to believe when you're watching the episode that this like classic actor who goes back to the 30s and the 40s with these classic movies couldn't remember his lines. But, but well, that's why there was no cross-examination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. But uh, Daniels had to shoot Elijah Cook's uh, scenes like li- almost line by line because wow. he, he couldn't really remember them. But, you know, to the editors who cut this all together – Bravo. <laughs> it's act four. We're on board the enterprise. And we basically rehash what we already knew as Spock demonstrates beating the computer in chess. And then Cogley asks him. Could that have had an effect on the visual playback we saw? Object. The witness would be making a conclusion. Which is exactly what you asked McCoy to do when you were questioning him. And I, But I love the way he phrases this. Hypothetically, Mr. Spock. Hypothetically, Miss Shaw. 
if what you suggest had been done, it would be beyond the capabilities of most men. Affirmative. What man aboard ship would it not be beyond? The captain, myself, and the records officer. Cogley's already figured it out. Right. Nobody else has figured this out yet. Not only has he figured this out, but what I love about from this point, you know, with Act 4 kicking off is just the way that the character of Cogley has shifted. He has become not only more confident, but he is now on the offensive and he is empowered. This character has become like an aspirational character. Speech about human rights has has given that I'm getting ready moment the final moment, whether or not he was ready for it at the time, like this is now the payoff. Like now he's ready and he's, he's on, he's on his path. And you're right, Steve, he does know. He absolutely knows because the next question he asks is he asks Kirk, how did you search for Finney? And he goes, Oh, we did our standard phase one search. And then Cogley asks the most important question. If you start a search for a man, you assume, don't you, that he wants to be found. He's not hiding. And then he asks, on a ship of this size, could a man evade such a search? And the music hits, and now Kirk gets it. Possible. Yeah, when Kirk gets it, the look on his face, oh, it's, it's a shocking moment. I'm getting the chills just talking about that whoa moment. And then that, that moment of empowerment when Cogley says, Gentlemen, I submit to you that Lieutenant Commander Ben Finney is not dead. Oh, it's great. Great moment. Well, and what's so funny is, is like, I totally think that he was a terrible lawyer. I totally think that the I may be getting ready goes nowhere. It doesn't matter because he delivers that speech. And now he is what he does in this scene is so great that you just love him. Absolutely love him. We're on the bridge. So I have to say, I never bumped on any of this before. Watching it this time, this whole thing makes no sense at all. I still love it, but it makes no sense. So this was filmed on day four of the production of Court Martial. Hmm. And it was on day four of the production of Court Martial that the cast and crew of Star Trek picked up a copy of Daily Variety and read the unconfirmed news. This was not released by NBC or Desilu, but there was a report in Daily Variety that Star Trek was being picked up for at least 10 more episodes. Mm. So that is like what every working actor and writer and producer wants to hear is that we got renewed. We got picked up for the back 10. So everybody was in a mighty good mood on the day that they were filming the scene. Could you imagine if the variety article said, not only is Star Trek being picked up for another 10 episodes, but there will be a bunch of guys talking about it 55 years from now. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be nine more shows and 13 movies or actually 14 if you include Galaxy Quest. So so what we hear next is that they want the court to participate in some kind of experiment. And as right after that happens, Cogley says, but I got to go. <laughs> yeah, that makes no sense. No sense. That makes no sense. And the reason it doesn't it doesn't make any sense is because this is another scene that actually was shot but never used because of time. 
was he went back down to the Starbase to get Jamie. If that actually was used, it would have made a lot more sense. But for right now, for everybody listening and for everybody who watched these episodes and watched this episode in this moment, they're like, where the hell is he going? <laughs> well, I still don't think it makes sense because why does he have to get Jamie? He has to get Jamie because she's what saves us at the end. But we, but Cogley didn't know that. There's no he, walking out on a court trial just to get the daughter of the supposed victim is like that. Does it makes no sense? But there's a, <laughs> but the momentum is totally working. And what we hear in, in the experiment is we're going to get all the extra crew off the ship. Captain, are you maintaining an engine crew aboard? Our impulse engines have been shut down. We'll maintain orbit by momentum. And when the orbit begins to decay, we hope to be finished long before that. Well, this doesn't sound smart. I mean, it doesn't not, sound safe. <laughs> it doesn't sound safe. Like, why would you take that risk? You can use the little wand thingy to turn off the heartbeats. Like, just have a 10, a, 10 extra people to yeah. make sure that we're not going to. There's an alternate ending where the engines <laughs> don't restart and they have to risk implosion. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, they go back in time three days. <laughs> um, not those three days. It's later on. And now we hear that the computer's basically got ears and it can hear everything that goes on. It's increasing its capability by one to the fourth power and can i just say one thing of course i mean i'm not the biggest math guy but isn't one to the fourth power still just one i mean <laughs> uh yes you're right yes it is one to the, one fourth, to the fourth, power fourth power is one <laughs> you're 100% right that's another thing that doesn't make sense in this episode that i love <laughs> Spock, but we don't care. We love the episode anyway. Spock flips a switch and there's this super loud noise. And it's like, why make it that loud? And why does it take so long for you to turn it down? You know, but it's okay. And what we hear is that this is all the heartbeats of everybody on the ship. Um, One interesting thing about the, about the heartbeats real quick is, uh, I mean, it's a great sound editing job because what they do is the volume is so loud that when you listen to the heartbeats, when it first starts, they're thumping really fast and really hard yeah. because of the sound. And when Kirk says, turn it down, and he does, turn it down a little. you notice the heartbeats all slow down. Mm. You know, and it's interesting that like this, that sound got everyone agitated and their hearts started beating faster. And then when he says, turn it down, the volume goes down, they all relax a little bit and their heartbeats sound kind of plays to that. It's kind of interesting. Okay, wait like, a minute though. Wait a minute yes. though. When I was growing up, and I would watch this episode. When I got to the point of court-martial where you're hearing all of the heartbeats, mm -hmm. that was scary. Kind of still is, like if you're watching the episode. And Kirk says we're going to take out the heartbeats one by one by using what he calls a white sound device, which looks just like a 20th century microphone. Yeah, but again, totally. look, there are certain things about Star Trek that we can get really critical on. And there are certain things about Star Trek that you just suspend your disbelief. And I think this episode is so strong that you suspend your disbelief in a lot of ways, especially in this act. But McCoy goes through everybody one by one and he takes out the heartbeat from the sound that you're hearing. And lastly, myself. That's all of us, except for the crewman in the transporter room. Mr. Spock eliminated his heartbeat. And that moment where you still hear one heartbeat and nobody says anything. And I went from being sort of a little scared with all the heartbeats. Now it's just chilling. And the way that Percy Rodriguez yeah. handles this moment, the look on his face, the revelation on his face. Yeah, because he doesn't necessarily buy it. He hasn't bought it from the beginning. And when Rodriguez stands up slowly and he says out loud, Finney. 
and you hear that music cue and you see the look on Uhura's face. She's smiling. I, I have that exact note, Scott, about Uhura's look. You know, she's so relieved that Captain is innocent. It's just this great, uh, this great little smile creeps across her face. And Kirk has a bit more composure in his stand. And he says, localize that. B-deck. In or near engineering. Seal off B-deck, sections 18Y through 23D. Acknowledged. It's such a great moment. Well, and then the moment of Kirk face-to-face with the Commodore totally. is such a, like, it's not I told you so. It's not I'm innocent. It's just the strength of him facing this extremely strong person and know, and him acknowledging the truth. The way uh, Stone says, So Finney is alive. And Kirk just... It would seem so. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a little bit of a turning of the screw there. And then Kirk goes, I'm going to go after him alone. And it's like, why? Why would you? That doesn't make that decision makes no sense. All of these decisions make sense dramatically right. and for tension, but they don't actually make sense. You know, like the fact that we've taken all the crew away from the Enterprise and our orbit's going right. to decay. You would beam up a bunch of security guards and they would go rush that yeah. area. And I mean, the it. odds are the guy's armed. Like, you wouldn't just go in alone. Yeah, where's um, the cavalry that you see at the end of Friday's Child, you know, yeah. all the secure yeah. the red shirts. <laughs> so Kirk heads down to engineering and he has a phaser and we hear this voice. Hello, Captain it's, it's a great voice. And, you know, I've always loved, loved the technique in film where you're, you hear something or someone before you actually see it. Like in The Empire Strikes yeah. Back, when you hear the Snowwalkers before you see them. Like in Apocalypse Now, when you hear the voice of Colonel Kurtz before you see him. So, so we've now established the presence of Finney with the heartbeat and, and hearing his voice in engineering. But we still haven't seen him. He's like this voice of God. He's sounds kind of scary, but he also sounds a little off his rocker. Then it's not too late. We can help you. Like you helped me all along, kept me down, robbed me of my own command. I'm a good officer, as good as you. I've watched you for years. The great Captain Kirk. So Ben Finney is played by Richard Webb, who is best known for being in 40 episodes of the TV series Captain Midnight and 39 episodes of the series Border Patrol. But Finney is clearly, he looks older than Kirk. He's in his close to 50. And uh, Kirk is above him in rank and he's in his early 30s. So you could see how jealous and bitter and irrational and out of his mind Finney is. Yeah, he's all at once very menacing and crazy eyed and, yeah, it's a great performance. He's full paranoid. And you know what I noticed this time? And I don't know if this was on purpose. It feels like they cast someone who has very similar features to William Shatner, similar coloring, similar hair color, you know, a similar, except older, less handsome and crazed. You know what and I mean? And also scruffy. Yeah. Yeah. Scruffy. yeah, you're right. You're right. He does kind of have the same sort of, you know, like ch- ch- chiseled jaw, you know, the, the, the hair with the flopping over and the, you're right. It's He's like, even wearing the same shirt, gold. Well, well, and when they're right behind each other, it's very noticeable to me this time. And I was like, oh, this is what happened to Kirk if his life went the wrong way, Oh, you know, or this is the poor doppelganger of Kirk or the want to be Kirk or the not quite Kirk. 
you know, and he's full, full paranoid. And what he says is, Oh, I wouldn't kill you, Captain. Your own death would mean too little to you. But your ship. What about my ship? It's dead. I've killed it. I tapped out your primary energy circuits. So he knows Kirk, too, because he is 100% right. His ship is the most important thing to him, much more important than his life. That's five. What's our orbit status? Decaying, Captain. Variants at second level depreciating unusually fast. The ship is starting to spiral in. The orbit is decaying, and Spock tells the court, like, let me get you to the transporter room, and the the Commodore says, The court has not yet reached a verdict. We will hear this witness out. And again, I go, that is stupid. Like, why don't they go down to engineering? But then Kirk kind of turns it around on him because he says, Is Jamie included in that deal? What do you mean? She's on board by now. And this is Kirk doing what Kirk does. He finds a weakness and he completely exploits it. You know, it reminds me of what he what he does in The Ultimate Computer as well. When when Dr. McCoy says, uh, Daystrom's on the verge of, insan- of a, a nervous breakdown, if not insanity, that's the moment Kirk says, the M5 must be destroyed. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean he just knows how to drive you over the edge and that's where you're going to make a mistake. Yes, she's on board. Why did you do that? Why did you bring her here? Finney like kind of cowers down in just defeat. And that's when Kirk pounces on him and they get into this big fight that takes, that covers the entire engine room. The problem is no one ever expected Star Trek to be remastered in high definition where you could clearly see that they, that that is not Richard Webb and William Shatner fighting, that that is really Troy Melton who is playing Finney and Chuck Clow, who is playing Kirk, the stuntmen, and their faces are so obvious. Um, but it's part of the charm of the original series. Uh, honestly, it was obvious to me when I was a kid watching yeah, it on a 23 inch. Yeah. It's funny. I was thinking about this, Scott, by the way. It's remarkable in these first 15 episodes how few fight scenes there have been. This is the biggest knockdown drag out fight scene we've had i think so far in the show i mean i think the the fight between uh, gary mitchell yeah and, that's uh, the other one james r kirk and where no man has gone before that right. that's one for the books that is absolutely one for the books but yes this is a it, like you know like you you'll see you'll see another big stuntman fight in in uh, space seed uh in yeah. engineering also in engineering that's, yeah. So, but with a couple of big haymakers, Kirk takes him out. We end up in a Jeffrey's tube where we hear that Finney told him how he sabotaged the ship. Kirk pulls out some big cables and while the ship is shaking, and of course he manages to do the last thing necessary to fix the Enterprise and the power comes back. And that was in the Jeffrey's tube, which yes. as we all know, was named after set designer Matt Jeffries, actually the designer of the Enterprise itself. And at the end, we hear, Unless the prosecution has an objection, I rule this court to be dismissed. Absolutely no objections. It's later. We're on the bridge. A real Shaw is there. And she says, Sam Cogley asked me to give you something special. And hands him a book. It's not a first edition or anything. Just a book. Sam says that makes it special, though. I feel the same way about books. Even though mine are digital now, Books are special to me too. Well, especially uh, the photo novels. Those photo novels. <laughs> gotta get the photo novels. Gotta get the photo novels. I'm telling you, everyone listening to Enterprise Incidents, I'm sure they know what photo novels are and they will have my back and say that those photo novels are absolutely special. Dave, you have a set of photo novels, right? 
I don't have them anymore, but I did have them all at one time, yes. Uh, you both, guys, you both have got to get those photo novels. You, you want to know what thought I had when she hands him this book? Is What's I that? went, this is what started Jim Kirk's love of antiques and why mm. la- years later when Spock hands him A Tale of Two Cities, that it's part of his collection. That's great. That's uh, a great, a great thing. Oh, and also – so we were on the scene on the bridge and and now, you know, Kirk and Char back to being all lovey-dovey. It reminds me of that blooper that we've seen at the blooper reels at the conventions. Shaw says uh, to Kirk, Do you think it would cause a complete breakdown of discipline if a lowly lieutenant kissed a starship captain on the bridge of his ship? Well, in the blooper, she goes, do you think it would cause a breakdown of discipline if a lonely lieutenant kissed the star of a ship captain? And, <laughs> yeah. and the look on Shatner's face in the blooper is like, bring it on. <laughs> Not always got a big laugh at the conventions. <laughs> but in fact, they do share that last kiss and then look around and Kirk says, see, no change. Discipline goes on. And she says goodbye. And I love what he says. He goes, better luck next time. I had pretty good luck this time. I lost, didn't I? Great moment. That's great writing right there. Really, really cute looks between Kirk, between McCoy and Spock and Kirk. And Kirk's last line. She's a very good lawyer. Obviously. Indeed she is. And that brings us to the end of Court Martial. That brings us to the end of our first episode of Enterprise Incidents with a very, 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 very special guest. And Dave, you went above and beyond. We're like peas and carrots here on Enterprise <laughs> Incidents. And, and you know, like watching the episode to prep for Enterprise Incidents. And, and after this discussion, how do you feel that Court Martial stands in a, in a reappraisal on your own? Well, I think, you know, doing a, a deep dive and watching these things the way they do certainly – the warts get exposed a little more because you're, you're being a little more critical, but you also get to kind of revel in the parts that you love. And, and those won't change for me. Uh, Court Martial still stands as, as a favorite episode and Kirk's line of uh, nothing is more important than my ship is one of my favorite Kirk lines of all time. And it's, I just, I'll always love this episode. It's been so interesting watching this again for the show, because, of course, I've always loved the episode, but I've never thought about it the way that I've been thinking about it here. And I'd say having the conversation with you, Scott and Dave, it's just like really made it even clearer the things that I love about the episode and the things that I think totally don't work. I never stopped to consider all the things in the final act that just make no sense to me. Like there just doesn't make sense. Why did they have to get rid of all the crew? <laughs> why did they put the enterprise on autopilot? Why does Kirk have to go down and face Finney by himself? Why does Samuel T. Cogley leave in the middle of the trial to get Jamie? And the only reason he leaves is because she's going to solve the problem that we don't know, yet know exists because we don't know that Finney has sabotaged the enterprise. So all of these things just really, really, and why does our court just sit there and go, we're going to hear this witness out when the ship is literally spiraling into crash. You would think we could hear the witness out a little bit later. I think plot wise, those things don't make sense at all, but the things that I love about the show, I still love. And the, and the biggest agree. one, yeah. And the biggest one is, is Samuel T. Cogley and this idea. I really think his speech is part of what made me want to be a lawyer. 
And, and of course I never became a lawyer, but like that was <laughs> what I went and studied constitutional law and politics and things like that. And a lot of that came from the speech. And I'll tell you something else that I was thinking about is, you know, we joke about the Star Trek historical thing where we're going to start in the distant past, come up to our present and then step into the future. So we start with the code of Hanurabi and we move on to the constitution. And then we have these other futuristic things. What is it? The universal. Uh, oh, something. it's uh, uh, the fundamental declarations of the Martian colonies. Of the Martian colony. The, the, and what's the further, Steve, the statutes of alpha three. I mean, look, uh, I got to tell you, well, and let me tell you, can I tell you what I love about that? Yes. Let me tell you what I love about that. What I love about that is that it says that we're not done. Mm -hmm. It says mm -hmm. we today haven't figured it out is that we've made that the step of the constitution got us to a certain point, but we're not done. Or the step as was happening in the mid sixties of the civil rights movement. That's great. Not done. And you know what? The Martian colony and the whatever it is on Alpha 3. The statutes. The, the statutes <laughs> of Alpha 3. They're not done either. Is that that's the thing is that even though that the Federation and all of those people have advanced to a certain place, it's only one step in a continuity of continuing to improve over and over again is that we still have so far to go. And part of what's going to get us there is the love of books and the past and knowledge and Samuel T. Cogley and all of us looking to, to as you say on every episode, to boldly go. And yep. this is boldly going in a totally different direction. It's boldly going on justice and human rights. And I really love that. Uh, books, my friend, books. You know what? I got to tell you, I, I, I've, I've always loved court martial, and it wasn't until I got much, much older, and I was reading all these books and periodicals about the making of Star Trek and the making of particular episodes that I realized how problematic it was when it came to writing court martial. All the rewrites it went through, and certainly it wasn't until I was much, much older that. You know, that last act is really a mess when you really hold it under scrutiny, but it still works. I mean, if you if you don't think about it too, too much, I mean, here we are, you know, spending, you know, two, two and a half hours talking about a single Star Trek episode that was only 50 minutes. So the, I think we're certainly guilty of thinking about it too much, but for all the right reasons. But I still think like the moment when they're on the bridge and you just hear that one heartbeat. Totally. It's chilling. And the way that Commodore Stone slowly gets up from his chair and he says, Finny, like it still works. It's still a great episode. And, you know, there's so much about this episode that works. And I agree with you about Cogley's speech. It's one of the great speeches of Star Trek. It's so inspiring. I think Court Marshall is a, is a, is a extremely entertaining episode. It's a great Kirk story. There's so much great drama in this episode. And I think it's like so many other episodes we've talked about here on Enterprise Incidents. It is in fact a superior episode. By the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we, we'd love to hear all of your comments about court martial or anything else we've covered on Enterprise Incidents. The first place to look, if you're on Facebook, search for the Enterprise Incidents. If you're on Twitter, we're at Enter Incidents. If you're on Instagram, we're at Enterprise Incidents. Please subscribe to the show. Don't even if you don't want to listen to every episode, subscribe to every episode because it really helps us. And what helps us even more is if on Apple Podcasts you leave a review. If you do listen to the show on YouTube, we love to interact, hear your comments there, and we love commenting back. And Scott, if people wanted to reach you on social media, how would they go about that? 
Well, the real, real easy, Steve. You can just reach out to me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. That's with a T-Z. You can check out my YouTube page, you know, where I have all, all sorts of great film content and shows that I produce and edit myself and host. That's, uh, you know, it's just Scott Mance. That's my YouTube page. But definitely, uh, like Steve said, please go to Apple Podcasts and please review Enterprise Incidents so that more people can find out about us. And definitely, if you are loving what you are hearing so far on Enterprise Incidents, please spread the word to fellow trekkers and just fellow fans of television because we're not just diving deep into star trek we're diving deep into the production of a groundbreaking television series and there is still there's still so much that we have to get to here on enterprise incidents where can people find you steve well, they morris can, they can find me at sr morris on twitter sr morris one and of course at sr morris one of course on instagram and if you want to hear not just about television but about movies you can check out my other podcast it's the cinephiles and in particular we had a courtroom drama here well guess what we've covered some courtroom dramas on the cinephiles like one of the greatest courtroom dramas of all time 12 angry men one of the greatest christmas movies of all time miracle on 34th street and if you love courtroom dramas and you love william shatner well you're gonna have to listen to our episode on judgment at Nuremberg. Well, Dave, once again, thank you so much. And Dave, where can people follow you or find you on social media? I know you're on Twitter with with a with a with an avatar that cleverly mixes your two biggest passions, which are Star Trek and Superman. Yes, that's true. Uh, my Twitter handle is underscore it means hope uh, <laughs> uh, at twitter.com. And that's where you can find me. Dave, it has been such a pleasure having you on as our first guest. I learned so much and it just, you know, you're one of our tribe. So it was just <laughs> absolutely wonderful having you here. Thank you yeah, so guys, much. I can't tell you the, the joy this has been and, and just exchanging ideas and talking about this with you and just being able to fan out. Um, you know, it's uh, it's something I don't get to do very often. And so I just... Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been really fun. And you guys are doing a great job. Well, thank you again. And thank you so much for the support. And uh, you know what? Uh, you you have raised the bar for Enterprise Incidents. And we are <laughs> grateful for that. My friend, Dave, you know, all the years, uh, uh, you know, we've known each other. Um, this is a, a really, really special moment. It's great to see you. And I hope you and your family are doing really, really well. And I hope to see you in person really, really soon. I agree. Thanks again, guys. Scott, where does the crew of the Enterprise go next? Well, the crew of the Enterprise comes full circle on the next episode of Enterprise Incidents when we get into the first and only two-part episode of the original series. That is The Menagerie, the episode where they all sit around and watch the original pilot. That <laughs> is next time. And we do have a very special guest for that episode. Uh, you know, we I got to tell you, you know, Dave Rossi is a tough act to follow, but I think we did follow him pretty well with our guest for our very next episode of Enterprise Incidents. So join us. And until then, keep going boldly. <laughs>